Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Beginning in about the year 1600, Japan enjoyed a period of unprecedented peace and stability, with nearly 260 years without any major warfare. But before this came the Sengoku, or Warring States period, in which the nation spent nearly 150 years in a state of almost constant civil war. What caused this unrest, and how did it finally end? Let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Scott Weber. Hi. And today we're going to be talking about, I haven't decided how I'm going to title this episode. We're going to be talking about the Sengoku period, but I have a feeling that people are not necessarily going to know what that means. So uh, as an alternate title, we could also possibly go with the uh, the Warring States period of Japan. And this is a period in history where uh, basically the unity of the entire country falls apart for approximately 150 years. And a lot of uh, intrigue, a lot of backstabbing, a lot of uh, kind of or intra-family drama stuff. It's, it's a good time. And, you know, there are a lot of people I would be happy to have on for this show. I figured maybe we could uh, touch on your specific knowledge, Scott, because you did live in Japan for a year and a half, two years? Uh, just one year, unfortunately, okay. but uh, yeah. But so you're you're gonna sit in as my expert? I'm just kidding. I'm not gonna put you on the spot with any of this <laughs> stuff. Um, what area were you in, though? You were in. Uh, I was in Fukuoka. You were in Fukuoka. Okay, I couldn't remember. Yeah, in the southernmost island. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really nice area of Japan, from what I've heard. It really is. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so anyways, we're, 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 I figured, hey, why not? You might have a little bit of knowledge that can help. But if not, I figured this is one you would be really interested in. Exactly. Yeah. I, I don't have a, a whole lot of knowledge about that, but a whole lot of interest. So uh, Excellent. looking forward to it. Excellent. I, I'm sure you know what a uh, haiku is. Have you ever heard of a, a senryu? No. It's another type of poem, uh, and it's similar to haiku. Uh, there's a few key differences, though. Instead of the five-seven-five syllable thing, uh, it's three lines of seventeen syllables each. And the other major difference is that while haikus are generally about um, nature, uh, and really a proper haiku should have like a season word in it, like there should be something about a season of the year. Um, Senryu tend to be about people, and often about kind of the uh, the follies of people. So there's a uh, there's a very famous uh, poem written about this uh, this time period that I want us to keep in mind as we go through. Uh, it's three lines. The first one is, uh, "If the cuckoo does not sing, kill it." 
The second one is if the cuckoo does not sing, coax it. And the third one is if the cuckoo, if the cuckoo does not sing, wait for it. These are the three different approaches to the three most, uh, or of the three most important people we're going to talk about today. And we'll we'll circle back around to it. Don't worry. We'll we'll talk about it again at the end. Um, but it's it's something to keep in mind that we are looking at three very different approaches to sort of the ruling of Japan and to uh, the future of Japan uh, in these three different people uh, as we move forward. So, kill it, coax it. Or wait for it. It's interesting that it starts with kill it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Isn't it though? And and I mean the order is is intentional. So we're going to start about the mid 1400s with this story. Um, you may may or may not know the imperial line in Japan is one of the oldest unbroken lines of succession of power in the world. It is verified at more than 2,000 years old that they can trace, like, they can verify, trace back uh, Japanese emperors. And if you go by, like, the legendary dates, it might be as much as 2,600 years of unbroken line. That being said, by the time we get to uh, the 11th century CE or so, uh, the power of the emperor has really been sidelined as an actual ruling power for the most part. Um, they're, they're sort of turned into a symbolic and religious, uh, figure, um, with, you know, sort of ceremonial responsibilities. And that's largely due to the rise of the samurai class in, in, in Japan and the establishment of the office known as, uh, the shogun. And the shogun is like, um, it translates vaguely to like supreme commander. It's very much like the the head general, commander in chief kind of thing, um, mm. which is separate yet from the uh, from the from the emperor. And the idea, at least on paper, is that while the the emperor takes care of sort of the the ceremonial aspects of ruling Japan, the shogun is the one who deals with kind of the day to day stuff. But in reality, what it means is that the shogun is the one that's calling the shots and whoever the emperor is, is basically kept off to the side and told to keep out of it a little bit. The Ashikaga family had been the shogun uh, for about 100 years at this point. They had started uh, in in the mid 1300s. And while they had been ruling for about 100 years, it had been a pretty rough 100 years for Japan in particular. Um, for one thing, it was uh, pretty bad in terms of like natural disasters and things like that. There were some pretty bad earthquakes, uh, really bad famines that resulted from that. And as a result, a lot of people are really not doing terribly well, you know, economically speaking. It's also a period where China really turns its eye on Japan and on one hand offers it uh, trade deals, but on the other hand, expects some level of fealty uh, in with that. And what that results in is kind of growing inequality that's exacerbated by those uh, natural disasters, right? So you have some people that are getting very, very rich off of this trade with China, but it's just highlighting how poorly some of the kind of lower uh, 80% or so of society is doing uh, as a result. And so you're getting a lot of kind of social unrest out of all of that. Right. Now let's zoom in on like a very, very specific thing that's going to happen, which is that in 1464, uh, the current shogun, uh, Ashikaga Yoshimasa, uh, doesn't have an heir and he's a little bit worried about succession. 
So the like the the shogun is very is it a hereditary role uh, similar to the emperor? Like are, are there like bloodlines of shoguns? Uh, yes and no. So functionally, yes, it it's it stays within a family. Um, technically speaking, the emperor could basically assign that role to anyone that they wanted. Um, mm. but functionally they don't at this point in time. Like it's so, uh, baked into the tradition of the role to have it, uh, uh, transmit hereditarily that it's just as important for the Shogun to make sure that th the passage of power is, uh, is sorted out. Um, it's just as important for them as it would be for the emperor. So like, right. at, at any point they could technically take away the shogunate from uh, the Ashikaga family and say, nope, you're not the shogun anymore. We're going to give it to this other person for my, you know, for whatever reason. In fact, they wouldn't really need to give a reason. But functionally speaking, the shogun is the one that has control of the entire army. And the emperor, while they have ceremonial power, doesn't actually have any like functional military power. There's not a lot of leverage that they have over the shogun. Mm -hmm. so yeah I, I mean it's very similar to like the the roman emperors in that way where like technically no it doesn't have to be passed down uh to your children and you know with you know you can see with roman emperors often it works better when you don't <laughs> but functionally speaking most people would pass it, pass it down to one of their heirs now there was a little bit of wiggle room there in terms of like if you had several sons like which one you might give it to but it was going to be one of your children whenever possible. And if not one right. of your children, then definitely a, a relative. Right. So, so functionally hereditary, but no like official rules of succession handed down by God or something. Exactly. The, the trouble yeah. with uh, the succession uh, not being in place, though, is that if there isn't someone lined up and like very clearly this is the next Shogun, then mm. it becomes a power vacuum that... Right. But, you know, if your if your family is still, you know, functionally the strongest, you could probably defend, but not without some trouble. If you're not the strongest, you might have some problems. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's a little bit tenuous, right? So, anyways, Ashikaga Yoshimasa concerned about uh, the the his his bloodline. Essentially, he actually goes to his brother, who um, and this is pretty common for uh, uh, noble families in, in Japan. His brother had actually entered a, a Buddhist monastery and was a monk. And basically he said to his brother, who was younger, basically like, come on back. I'm going to make you my heir. You know, when I die, you'll be the next shogun. So we have uh, continuity. And his brother goes, okay, sure, fine. Comes back in 1464, ready to be the next shogun. In 1465, Yoshimasa's son is born. Uh-oh. Now we have two people. <laughs> and this is a little bit of a problem, right? Like it's not necessarily a big problem in like good, um, you know, cohesive, well-functioning families. It's probably something that's survivable. But in this case, things had been sort of discontent for some time in the country in general, right? And people start kind of drawing lines based on who they're supporting to be the next shogun. Because both of these uh, people have a pretty strong claim to the throne. One of them is uh, directly the son of the last shogun, so he's got a pretty good claim. The other one is the son of the current shogun, which is also a very strong claim. And you know, without those clear hereditary laws in there, like this isn't like primogeniture, 
where it's like the oldest son takes it every single time. That's just mm -hmm. enough ambiguity for people to start kind of picking sides. Maybe they don't even necessarily care who's going to be the next Shogun, but if they have some sort of dispute uh, at home uh, in their own region and they can paint their enemies as supporters of the opposite side, it can be used as pretext for local mm. conflicts. So these two factions are created. Basically, those who supported the brother, who, which includes the, the Shogun, his brother, uh, a lieutenant that he had, a guy named Hosokawa, uh, those three, like the, the Shogun starts out actually supporting his own brother over his new son. Um, so that's one side of it. And then the other side is actually the Shogun's wife is supporting the son as the next Shogun, which makes a lot of sense because it keeps her in uh, a much closer kind of orbit of power, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then a, uh, a lieutenant or, or a general, sorry, uh, named Yamana, who is prepared to basically fight to uh, uh, support this newborn's claim. And again, a lot of this stuff is not necessarily about who's going to be the next shogun it's a pretext for other problems that people are having locally um we've already talked about the emperor and the shogun as as sort of the power structure the rest of japan is more or less divided up among uh leaders that are called daimyo and a daimyo is basically a warlord it fits in well enough uh for for what they are they're going to be regional governors who are you know, primarily military leaders more than they are necessarily politicians. All these different daimyos are going to be from different uh, clans. We're going to say clan more than family necessarily, because while the core sort of ruling family might actually have that last name, um, the clan is made up of a lot more sort of structure than just the, you know, related by blood. You also have a lot of other people in that same orbit that are sort of, it's as much like a firm as it is necessarily a family. So, so clan is usually the, the, the word that we use for that. Right. So you have these different clans, clans that are basically in an even split over the, who they're supporting for the next Shogun. And all of this finally boils over in 1467 the baby's still two years old like we don't even really know what's going to happen here it's not as though the the current shogun is like on his deathbed or anything but it's still too much tension it all boils over in 1467 uh when a war called the onin war breaks out it's heavy fighting it is um really brutal and it quickly becomes like very aimless it's not about you know taking the kid hostage until, you know, we can, we can install the brother on the throne or something like that. Um, by the way, I know I'm using a lot of, um, like family relation words rather than specific names. Honestly, I gave this a lot of thought. It's to do you guys a favor because all of the family, like all of the personal names in this story, each of these noble families is going to have like a, a, a naming convention where they all sound very similar. So later we're going to have two guys named uh, Nobunaga and Nobuhide. And that's like one of the more like distinctive familial, familial relationship names. Like everybody in that family, uh, all, the, all the men in that family, their names start with Nobu. And it's very, very confusing after a while. So uh, when we need to, we'll use names. But other than that, familial relations, relations do just as well. I personally... Appreciate that. I, I get confused when two people's names are with the same letter, so uh, it'll be easier for me. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's good. That's good. Trying to keep it simple. Yeah, this this story isn't necessarily about um, you know, which which first name you're keeping track of. It's it's more about the broad strokes of it, definitely. But every once in a while you really need to zoom in on stuff like this, right? So basically, yeah, like I said, the war spirals really quickly. The two sides mainly are led by um those uh commanders that we talked about, uh Yamana and Hosokawa. Uh both of them die by 1473, not necessarily in fighting, but like they're out of the picture within the first five years of the the war and honestly neither side is really sure how to end it after that like it continues to be people very very far away from kyoto which is the capital at the time um fighting over things that have nothing to do with this actual succession uh the shogun himself basically said i'm not dealing with this this sucks and spends the entire war writing poetry essentially <laughs> making no actual leadership decisions about the situation, making no proclamations about what people should do, basically going, this is dumb, let them fight it out. It's so confused that, in fact, like the heir that he supports in this war switches halfway through. He switches from supporting his brother to supporting his son halfway through when there's some, you know, allegiances start changing. Like, it's it almost doesn't really matter. It's more kind of like... The beginning of World War One, where like we can talk about the specific grievances of the Serbian nationalists who uh, assassinate the Archduke, or we can point out that like, listen, everything was ready to blow anyways, and they just need an excuse to go. Right? Very similar vibe here. So uh, yeah, I was gonna ask like, was there some sort of underlying like territorial dispute or something that uh, this was all a proxy for? But it sounds like like everyone was just angry. Yeah, like I said at the beginning, we had those natural disasters, the, uh, mm. you know, economic uh, inequality that was going on. Like a lot of that stuff was causing um, pretty significant tensions at, you know, across the entire country. There's there's just a bunch of like very complex underlying societal stuff going on here. And then when you have a crisis that big in the leadership um, with zero follow up to sort of reconcile it on the leadership's part, like when the when the leader himself goes like, mm, don't think I'm going to bother with this one. You know, you guys <laughs> right. you guys sort it out among yourselves like it, it, it's essentially giving everyone permission to work out all their petty local grievances on the battlefield without expecting any sort of intervention whatsoever on like a, a, a national leadership level. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of coming to the surface at this point in time. And it's, it's really interesting because Japan at this point in time, wasn't quite as locked down in terms of, uh, class roles as we kind of traditionally think of it as, um, in fact, a lot of those class roles end up locked in because of all of this conflict but still it's it's a pretty structured society in general right like if you you're you're either from one of the right families or you're not and there's not really a lot you can do about it if you're not but that starts kind of going out the window a little bit right in 1477 kyoto itself is is looted and destroyed um it's it's quite messy like they're they're coming for the emperor's home at that point right the emperor himself is also staying more or less out of this conflict you know the entire point of having a shogun is to have somebody else to deal with problems like this. Mm. So they're both writing haiku. In essentially, yeah. Yeah. Another really um, kind of telling 
thing that results from this conflict, you know, in terms of like where Japan is at as a society at this point in time, is a group called the Ikoiki. And they are, this is kind of after the Onin War itself is, is, is finished. It sort of ends with that 1477 looting of Kyoto. They, they, the, this shogun finally says like, okay, enough is enough. War is over. But at that point, like even though the war proper is over, the daimyo will continue with their local squabbles, just kind of realizing like the shogun's not going to do anything about it. So who cares? You know, if you have a problem with your neighbor and you have a big enough army, well, there's your solution. The Ikoiki are these really, it's, it's this really interesting group. Um, it's, it's mainly made up of um, the peasant class or samurai who weren't currently sworn to a, a daimyo that, you know, they, they didn't have a proper master. And keep in mind that uh, samurai at this point in time are, are generally not like the most well-off necessarily. The, uh, the Ikoiki were these, these uh, commoners, for lack of a better term, who in general, or, or most of them, subscribed to this very specific um, type of Buddhism uh, that became really popular uh, among all of this unrest. It was uh, called uh, Jodo Shinshu. Um, and it's a very specific type of Jodo Shinshu. Um, it's, it was very attractive, especially to the peasant class, because it doesn't really ask a whole lot of you other than like a, a sort of a verbal um, affirmation of the Buddha and basically promises you great rewards in, turn, in, in, in exchange for that. So it's like very little effort, maximum reward kind of thing, right? But there is also a um, sort of anti-establishment bent to it, at least through a couple of the, the leaders uh, of this sect, where they basically felt that, um, well, they, they essentially they opposed daimyo rule. They saw it as sort of a perversion of, of nature. They saw it as an overly militaristic structure to society, I suppose. And so this sect of Buddhism, which was very popular, and all of these people who um, were feeling very disaffected had found a essentially religious justification for rising up against the, their, their local warlords, which is a very dangerous combination. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this group is formed and they, they start like they're all over the place, but there are specific regions of the country where they are sort of the most effective or the most dangerous to the point where in 1486, they actually managed to overthrow a provincial governor, a daimyo, and take control of the entire province of Kaga. Um, and it's the first time a province in Japan is ruled by uh, someone not of noble blood. It's it's a huge deal. It's 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 considered incredibly disruptive. Interesting. And and what kind of how did they structure the the local government then? Like, was there still kind of one ruler of that, or was it more democratic? Well, it's it's um it goes through a bit of a like a, a couple of different phases, right? So they start off. Um, well, essentially here, well, let's let's go through the the what happened in that specific province. It's a good example of the sort of stuff that was happening in Japan at a, like a micro level all over the place. Oh, okay. Um, so the uh, the 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 governor of of Kaga province, uh, Togashi Masashika, had um, 
he'd just been overthrown by his younger brother as daimyo so he had he had been daimyo in all this conflict he's been, he's been overthrown by his younger brother who's trying to uh take control of the province and was was overthrown successfully and so not really knowing what to do at that point because now his brother has control over his entire forces from before he turns to the ikoiki for help and basically pro- uh, promises them um, lots of wealth and to concede to some of their demands uh, if they help him retake the province. The the Ikoiki are not necessarily thrilled to be working for a daimyo, but at the same time they see it as a legitimization of overthrowing the current daimyo. So they go, ah, okay, sure. Right? So he basically raises them as like a, like a militia, uh, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's this it's this alternate uh, civilian military and there's a lot of them they're really big and there are people um, who are part of the Ikoiki from other provinces who come into Kaga because they hear that this is an opportunity to do so right so it really swells their numbers and so they defeat the brother and Togashi is back in power uh the the brother had also been kind of against their specific sect like it put bans on it so they were especially ready to go right so uh togashi is back in power and then he's just not super forthcoming with the wealth promises that he had made (laughs) right what's more the ikoiki had just defeated and destroyed the conventional military that he would normally have relied on to deal with a peasant uprising Oh, I see where that's going. So now he has no defense and he's lost the um, allegiance of this this militia. And so they just completely oust him from power. A bunch of families who also just specifically don't like this Togashi um, join in the Ikoiki in the in the in the rebellion. So even if he had managed to scrape together some uh, some soldiers that hadn't been destroyed in the fight, fighting, a lot of them decided to join the Ikoiki against Togashi at this point in time. So people are making these really desperate bids on power that sometimes work out really well for them and sometimes don't. Right. So. Essentially, this whole thing ends with uh, with a couple of minor families and this giant peasant militia uh, besieging uh, Togashi's castle, and the man ends his own life under siege in a burning castle uh, rather than being taken prisoner by these these militias. So, you know, when when they take power, initially they install uh, another Togashi as like a, a puppet. Uh, daimyo who doesn't have any real power but is actually just doing whatever they ask them to um so that's step one of of your answer what what do they install they start with that and then step two is uh after some time there's kind of three major factions form within the ikoiki in kaga that have different ideas of how they want the province to kind of proceed forward the three of them start a sort of faction war with one another as to how to proceed forward after this, uh, you know, do we keep this uh, daimyo in place? Do we remove him entirely? Uh, and that civil war breaks down on the side of let's get rid of him entirely. So they sort of end up with a, like I suppose, like a citizen council sort of thing to to run the, the province. Um 
you know, uh, administratively, but realistically, it's not well run necessarily. It's a lot closer to like bandit rule than it is necessarily like a, a functioning province. Like we're, we're not talking about a, a province that is now like, you know, um, properly integrated into the, the rest of the empire in terms of like paying taxes and, and, you know, other, you know, working on infrastructure, things like that. Um, right. it, it's essentially, uh, chaos. Like it's not, it's not being properly run. It turns into, yeah, essentially mob rule. Right. Uh, so yeah, they, they abolished the office completely in 1530. Um, this, phenomenon is repeated elsewhere though in in japan at this point in time um sometimes it's it's you know peasants overthrowing daimyo much more often what you're seeing is either um major clans so uh clans like uh takeda or imagawa consolidating power by simply just defeating weaker neighbors and bringing them under their spheres of influence and in the like in the process growing their army armies significantly um, so that's really, really common. You're, you're looking at clans who are going from being able to field, you know, armies in the hundreds to armies in the tens of thousands during this period. Oh, wow. So huge consolidation. Huge consolidation with those biggest uh, families. And you'll also see a lot of minor clans that fall to some sort of rebellion with uh, to um, like even more minor noble families within who would have been retainers of some sort in the previous structure, saw their opportunity, took it over through the, the ruling clan and inserted their own family as the new daimyo. It's really, really common to see um, less, uh, you know, less wealthy, um, less well uh, uh, equipped families losing their their offices at this point in time to uh, subordinates who are simply, you know, better at pulling together a, uh, an army or who are, um, you know, smarter and can outplay them, uh, things like that. There's a lot of subterfuge. There's a lot of assassinations. Um, it's, it's a really, really messy time. It's a very dangerous time to be, uh, in any sort of position of power, unless you are the absolute strongest. This whole ph phenomenon of kind of turning over power is known as, uh, Gekokujo, which means, uh, low conquers high. And it's a term that is like very much celebrated by some people in the society and very much, uh, feared by others. So that's everything that's happening within Japan itself. There are also things happening outside of Japan that are having effect on it directly. One of those I already mentioned, which was the uh, trade with China had really picked up since about, you know, f since the beginning of the, the 15th century. Um, there had actually been uh, one Japanese emperor who had basically had to go to the Chinese court and subjugate himself essentially to China. Um, it, it's, it's a complicated system. There's, there's something called the tributary system with China at this point in time. And keep in mind that even a country as large as, as Japan, when you're that close to a much bigger country like China, you sort of just have to play ball a little bit. Kind of like appease them. Essentially. Yeah. It's also important to understand that the role of the Chinese emperor is very much tied into, you know, Confucian philosophy and like a very structured world order that places China at the direct center. Mm. And 
though that that fact combined with the fact that China is incredibly wealthy are two things that you just sort of have to make peace with if you're going to do any business with China whatsoever. So essentially, if you wanted to do business business with China and you are Japan or Korea or Vietnam or any number of other client states on the periphery, which is how China would have seen you, um, all you really need to do is on a regular schedule, uh, you need to send envoys to uh, China to kowtow in front of the emperor and declare your submission to him. You need to bring them gifts at that point in time, and they will send you home with more gifts and permission to trade with China. And in terms of actual power structures that exist, any you know political dynamics, um, any uh, you know obligations, those don't really exist. You don't have to do anything for China, except for go there and acknowledge the fact that you're subordinate to China. So it's a bit of an exercise in swallowing your pride. Japan had decided that they wanted a slice of that pie. Uh, they they went they they you know bowed down to the emperor. They got the permission to trade, and it had been really helpful for certain portions of of uh, uh, Japanese society, but. As I said earlier, it also kind of contributed to growing inequality. And the other dynamic that you need to know about is that Japan really didn't have ships, um, essentially at all, uh, whereas China did. So any trade that was happening with China was essentially at the whims of Chinese traders coming to Japan, trading with Mm. them and allowing them to go off, which works fine in good times. But when the entire country is at war, all of a sudden, traders don't necessarily want to come and trade with you because it gets a little bit dangerous. Early on in the fighting, you did have some daimyo who are, you know, trying to work these trade angles to get a bit of an advantage. But most of them are so wrapped up in trying to backstab each other that it's not really functionally helpful to anyone, daimyo or uh, Chinese traders. And essentially, it gets to a point where no one is coming to Japan to trade anymore at all. But they are still required to send envoys to China to give gifts. And that math no longer works out anymore. Hmm. Right? Yeah, why go and give gifts if you're not getting the trade in return? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what looked like a really good deal, you know, 100 years before, it's, it's really not working out so well. So yeah, China stops, suspends all trade with Japan in 1523 due to all these conflicts, just says it's too dangerous, not going to happen anymore. Um, And in 1549, uh, Japan suspends all of their tribute to China. This is a really, really dangerous move that they've just made Uh, because China doesn't like when they stop getting their tributes. Um, They don't necessarily see it in the same terms as japan would have which is this is a you know this 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 is a a hold your nose and and uh swallow the bad taste kind of thing in order to get trade they see that as their kind of natural right uh as sort of center of the world right they they didn't look at it as like a business proposition it was more like everyone must come and pay pay tribute because we're china Mm -hmm. yeah It's a really interesting dynamic. It's one that I always found, uh, this is a complete sidebar, but I I took took, uh, several courses on uh, Russian history. And and Russia's weird because it's 
you know, on, on one side, it's butting up against, uh, you know, Europe proper. It's, it's up against Poland and, and uh, places like that. On the other side, it is bordering China, right? And so Russian uh, governments in particular learned how to walk this really fine line where their envoys, you know, on one hand, were very, you know, were able to like navigate, uh, you know, French court sort of protocols. And on the other hand, we're completely uh, comfortable with sending somebody to China to kowtow against the emperor and say, yes, Russia is subordinate to China. Um, now we, may we do business, please. And, you know, m meaning absolutely none of it, but being willing to do so for <laughs> the trade that it brings. Right. And right. it's, it's something that a lot of other European countries really struggled with um, in terms of, of sort of swallowing their pride to do business with China. But yeah, the Russians, they, they just never really seem to have a problem with it. I, I always thought that was really interesting, their whole, the, the way they kind of straddle those two worlds. Uh, anyways, um, so, so China is, is one big consideration that's happening in this, in this time period. Um, there is another reason, though, that uh, Japan felt relatively comfortable in ending those tributes in 1549, which is something that happened six years earlier in 1543, um, a trade expedition likely bound for China ultimately, uh, sent by uh, Portugal, uh, landed on uh, Tanegashima Island. And it was the first time anyone from Japan had met anyone from uh, Europe. And um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was very interesting for both parties. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just, I, I really enjoyed the, some of the, like, you'll, you'll see drawings, um, by Japanese people of the first Europeans that they've ever seen. Extremely amusing. I really enjoy them. Or, or they'll, they'll say, you know, they're basically calling the Portuguese dumb because they didn't know how to use chopsticks or read Japanese writing. Um, which, which I really, I, I really appreciated. Right. Um, but yeah. Oh, and the other one was that they, uh, they, they're, they're incapable of controlling their emotions. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, uh, yeah. So the Portuguese end up on, uh, in, in Japan and you know, the, the culture shock works both ways there. The, the Portuguese also kind of don't know how to approach things, um, with, with Japanese, uh, traders because Japan doesn't really fit into, their conception of trading in this part of the world. Japan in this era is just as urban, if not more urban than uh, Europe. They are just as wealthy, if not more wealthy in terms of like precious metals, things like that. Their craftsmanship is just as good, if not better. Like they are, uh, you, the, these European traders are very used to going to these places and finding more agrarian societies and by their metrics, uh, significantly less uh, advanced societies, technologically speaking, and so on. And Japan doesn't fit into that mold at all. Um, they don't really know what to do with that necessarily, other than kind of make a bit of a spectacle out of it, I suppose. Interesting. So, I mean, they could still assume they're superior because they're not European, mm -hmm. but in like all measurable ways, they're essentially kind of unequal footing yeah well with it, all of their usual justifications aren't there and mm -hmm. that's and that's a little bit right. of trouble right and yeah it, it's it's one of those things where like what, what that turns into is like well th this is this is great like we found more people that are kind of like us like it's not necessarily a like an immediate like 
drawing back or anything like that. The Portuguese are just like very, very intrigued by what they're finding. They want to connect with these people. They want to, you know, uh, they, they want the, the Japanese to send envoys to Europe to see what Europe is like and see what they think of that. Um, you know, all, all of this like cultural exchange type stuff, right? But as intrigued as the Portuguese sailors are, the, the Japanese uh, people who meet them first are extremely wary. They do not trust the Portuguese at all. Japanese trade at this point in time is relatively closed off. Even the trade with, um, like the, the widespread trade with uh, China, is is relatively new in their in their history. They tend to try and just stick on Japan. Like they're not like it's a fairly closed society. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a little bit of work to get to a point where they're comfortable trading with uh, Portugal in a meaningful way. But it helps solve their Chinese uh, trade problem to some extent because, honestly, the Portuguese are going there anyways. And the, the thing that Japan can most readily offer to these Portuguese traders is silver. They're a volcanic uh, nation. They have a lot of like surface uh, precious metals. It is pretty easy to get a good silver trade going with the the Portuguese. And in turn, the Portuguese will buy the stuff from China that the Japanese were going to buy anyways, and the Japanese can then buy it from the Portuguese. So now they don't have to make any tributes to the Chinese emperor, but they still get the stuff just at a bit of a markup. And they don't want that markup necessarily, but at this point in time, they haven't gotten anything in 20 years either. So it's markup or nothing. In terms of what the Portuguese can offer other than resold Chinese goods, um, there's kind of two main impacts on Japanese society that come out of contact with the Portuguese. One is Christianity. There is a a sizable number of uh, Jesuit uh, missionaries who go to Japan as soon as it's opened up to Portuguese trade. Part of that whole you know, these people are on equal footing with us thing is great. Let's get them baptized as soon as possible, right? <laughs> they are, they, we don't even have to do any of the bringing, up, bringing them up to speed thing. We just need to bring them the good word. They'll be good to go, right? Um, so a lot of Jesuits come into uh, Japan at this point in time trying to convert as many people as possible. Um, they're not going to make the most uh, headway on that front, but there are a, a, a sizable number of, of people uh, in Japan who convert to Christianity in this era. The other big impact is guns. Obviously, Japan is just off the coast of China. They'd had, uh, you know, they'd had um, exposure to gunpowder before this, but a lot of Chinese guns at this point in time are what you kind of call a hand cannon. So, like, imagine a cannon barrel, but just make it about, you know, 18 inches long. And imagine how much iron that would take and how heavy that would be to hold. Oh, like like still the same proportions, though. Essentially. Just a, a little tiny mini cannon. Yeah, a little, little mini cannon. And then you have to touch a burning match through the hole like you would on a cannon, except you're also holding it at the same time. Wow. Um, they were heavy. They were annoying. They were hard to aim. Um, they failed all the time. Um, you know, metallurgy being what it was, you'd get burst barrels all the time, so they could be extremely dangerous. Um, you know, I think when it comes to like weapon history, a lot of people think, oh, when guns are invented, like we get rid of all the other stuff, right? Um, guns are bad for a really long time after they're introduced. 
They're so bad that a bow and arrow is significantly better in basically every way. It's more accurate, it's longer range, and it has a higher rate of fire. So mm -hmm. when it comes down to it, it's just more deadly. People stick with it longer. Not a lot of people know this, but originally samurai are actually archers. Like the whole like sword thing, that comes a lot later. Their main weapon for a very long time is, is the bow. Um, they're extremely accomplished archers in, in Japan. So for the Portuguese, the state of war is very profitable. They can sell a lot of guns. Um, the, the guns that they're selling are what's known as an arquebus, which is um, a type of like matchlock uh, musket kind of thing. So it's still slow, but it's significantly more accurate and it's significantly easier, easier to aim uh, than anything that's been seen in Japan before. There's still a lot of hesitation around it, but people do like what they're seeing. The Portuguese originally trade in a different place, a bunch of different places, but the daimyo of uh, Nagasaki uh, converts to Christianity and offers the port to the Jesuits, basically gives them a perpetual lease, like forever, on the port in Nagasaki. And so that becomes the main point of trade with uh, Westerners for Japan. During all of this upheaval, you both have a move away from Chinese trade and a move towards the West. You have a bunch of stuff introduced from Europe in this time period. Um, and it's uh, it's all not, I'm not going to say as destabilizing as the political situation, but it all it introduces a lot of extra complication to, to the situation, right? So we've been going for a good century at this point of back and forth civil war little squabbles there are there are so many of them that i'm, I'm you know, there's no point in getting into all of them they're all very like the same and very unique at the same time which makes it really hard to convey in this sort of format right each of them is like <laughs> their own little problem but all of them turn into essentially just constant civil war between all of these groups things are finally going to start coming to a head shortly though so uh why don't we take a break here and when we come back uh we can talk about uh, the Imagawa family, or sorry, the Imagawa family, and uh, their bid on uh, reconsolidating power in Japan once and for all, and uh, how poorly that goes. Back on HI101 here with Scott Weaver. Hello. And uh, so far, things have mostly been just falling apart, eh? Like, it's... Uh, it's it's not seeming like a, a great time in Japan at the moment. It's it's hard to think. I think uh, sometimes when when you're trying to conceptualize of uh, a time that's that disruptive that lasts for so long. You know, we're we're getting to a point in the story where basically anyone we're talking about uh, has been in this war in some capacity for their entire lives. Like, there's no one left alive that remembers peace in Japan at all. And it, it's sort of it's sort of crazy to imagine how much that must um, affect some of the decision making, some of the uh, attitudes of these people. Um, it's it's really it's really hard to get yourself in that headspace. I was thinking the same thing, honestly. Like when you were talking about, oh, you know, like the various backstabbing and, and decisions made. Like it's hard to imagine something like that even happening today in most places. Like it's it's I don't even know how to start thinking the way they would be thinking then. Yeah, like to, to even have one discrete uh, instance of that, you mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, let alone an entire society built around. I mean, like, honestly, I, I wasn't planning to really get into this because it's a uh, it's quicksand in terms of a, a show like this. But uh, like this is <laughs> this is the era when like 
when we talk about like ninja in any like historical sense of the meaning, this is the era when they're at kind of their their peak. Right. Doing assassinations and whatnot. Yeah, and a lot more espionage than than assassination mm-hmm. necessarily. But like, you know, when when we think about uh ninja as being a thing that that really actually existed and wasn't just, you know, a part of bad movies and things like that like this is this is the area this is the era where where they thrive is in this sort of environment and i think if anything when you when you sort of step back from the like oh cool they have you know uh you know they have ninja stars and stuff like when you step back from that part of it it's like oh no how how unhealthy must it be that that's like just a like a widespread part of society right that's just like a standard political tool that people use yeah Hey, have you met my brother-in-law? Yeah, he's he's a he's a spy and an assassin. Oh, cool. Yeah, I have a cousin that does that. Like, it's just you know, it's just so normalized at a, at a certain point. And again, it's you know that's happening at sort of the the upper echelons of society. All of the all of the peasants are just along for the ride, and you know they're they're all sort of hoping that uh, some of this uh, some of the stuff will help alleviate. Uh, you know the famine issues they've had and the and the poverty issues they've had and meanwhile it's just shoving them further and further down that path right that's not that doesn't help anybody nobody gets rich off, rich off of a situation like this everybody's uh, <laughs> ending up poorer so it's it's really just a bad place for a for a society to be in it's 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 yeah really terrible the the other parallel that my mind keeps trying to draw is like tenuous connections or not connections but you know parallels to uh, game of thrones mm. except kind of magnified across an entire society right it's, it's it's not just one family infighting and backstabbing and and assassinating but you know playing out simultaneously across all these small uh provinces yeah yeah i think that's i think that's uh not the worst comparison especially because a lot of the sort of higher level stuff in in game of thrones he george rr R. martin based on the war of the roses in uh right. in, in in england which you know certainly doesn't go on nearly this long but certainly has a, a similar various uh noble factions sort of squaring off to try and uh wrest ultimate power from each other like there are there are like in very very broad strokes some parallels to be drawn there Mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not the worst comparison you know like you've got you've got these these major families these houses or, or clans or however you'd like to talk about them making these these really risky bits that they're either going to pay off really big or that's going to be it like it's over <laughs> right um and and i think that is is um a really good segue into uh, our, our next subject, which is uh, a clan leader uh, named uh, Imagawa Yoshimoto, who in 1536 becomes uh, head of his family. And when he, the, the, the Imagawa clan is already one of the larger uh, clans in, in, in Japan at this point in time, but he becomes even more powerful when right after becoming head of the family, he marries into uh, the Takeda clan uh, marries um, the the daughter of the of the daimyo uh, of the Takeda clan, and this cements an alliance between two of the most powerful clans in Japan uh, by marriage, and that's a very common thing at this point in time, right? Like to have uh, a wife who is essentially 
Um, like that relationship is, is a, a diplomatic tool for lack of a better word. Um, and then, you know, a, a lot of these people would also have, um, consorts, uh, as, as well as their official, uh, spouse, but that, that marriage really makes, uh, Imagawa Yoshimoto one of the most powerful people in Japan. And yeah, there's wars with the neighbors, et cetera, et cetera. But even more importantly is that in 1554, so, uh, 18 years later, Imagawa marries his son to a daughter in a, a third very powerful clan, the Hojo clan. And this creates another very, very powerful alliance. And the three of them together are finally doing something that no other clan has managed so far in this family or in this in this story, which is they're finally big enough that they probably could take on everybody else if they absolutely had to. Mm. It wouldn't be easy. There would be a lot of depending on um, splitting allegiances between all the other families, but they figured they could probably cobble together an allegiance that would make it work. So they, they kind of have like a shot at total power, you know, like, like they're, they're reaching that level. Yeah. They're not like actually a majority, but you know, they're, 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 they're bigger than anybody else. And they think right. by a sizable enough, uh, margin that they would um it's a lot it's a lot like running a minority government actually i was just thinking that myself <laughs> um yeah they, they they don't they don't have they don't have the majority but they they can they can build enough coalitions to make it work um yeah i i think there's not the worst comparison to be made there uh so yeah i mean remember when we started all this a lot of these daimyo were able to field armies in the hundreds this alliance between the Imagawa, the Takeda, and uh, the Hojo, they are able to rally an army of 25,000. Wow. Now, not all of these, uh, when, when we're talking about an army that size, most of them are not samurai, right? Like most of them are not in proper armor with cool swords and, you know, the banners off their backs and all of that stuff. A lot of these people are peasants that they've rounded up and basically given a sharp stick Mm-hmm. like it's it's very like we're, we're talking like very feudal uh style battle tactics here right what what would the ratio be roughly of say like professional mm. soldiers or samurai to um less professional in an army that big it would be a fairly small number of like professional samurai um I don't know what the number is off the top of my head. I can I can see if I can find a number and, and pop it in the show notes uh, after the fact. If I had to take a guess, I would be shocked if it topped 10% samurai. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably significantly less than that. With this huge army, they finally feel uh, prepared enough to challenge uh, the shogun for supremacy. There's, there's the intention here to overthrow the Ashikaga family and install uh, an Imagawa shogunate. This is the this is the risk that's been there for the last hundred years, right? If you're not strong enough, and if you're not able to assert your authority, which which the Ashikaga uh, the Ashikaga family failed to do, um, you know, are you vulnerable uh, militarily speaking? And and this is the mm-hmm. this is the threat that they're vulnerable to, right? They're relatively geographically speaking, the center of of Imagawa power is relatively. Uh, close to Kyoto, like they're they're to the east. 
they've got one problem, which is that in order to get to Kyoto, they're going to need to march through Owari, which is a province run by the Oda clan. And uh, Imagawa has a bit of a uh, history with uh, uh, Oda Nobuhide, who had been leader of the the Oda clan for for quite some time. They they didn't get along terribly well. The Odas seemed to be up and coming, uh, like they were they were getting a little bit big considering how very small their prefecture was. And by getting a little bit big, I mean they could probably field an army of two to three thousand. Like they're still very small. They're just they're just big enough to be maybe a threat if the wrong situation came up, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, e- enough to kind of make things difficult, if not outright overtake them. Yeah. And so to get to Kyoto, like they would like to just sort of march through Owari and, and you know, not even deal with the Oda at all. That would be their, their kind of ideal uh, circumstance. But there's such a long history with the Oda that they aren't really expecting that. Nobuhide died uh, several years before the the Imagawa uh, alliance was ready to march. And uh, his son, Oda Nobunaga, was the new uh, head of the clan as well. In fact, there's a lot of like parallels between him and uh, Imagawa, right? Like they're they're fairly new. They've got a, a, a an alliance marriage in there. Like they're 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 both very driven men. They're both very ambitious men. It's just that you know the Oda clan is like a tenth of the size. Like they're just very very small in comparison. Mm-hmm. But Nobunaga himself is like he he's he's very much like a survival he's very much like a survivalist like he's had to scrap for literally everything he's gotten in his life so you know even before he was made head of the clan um like even his own mother preferred his brother over him for for head of the clan like there was a small civil war that he had to fight to you know both against his brother and against his uncle just to be able to take what is essentially his birthright like his his dad had left him um, like had made him his direct heir for daimyo of Owari. So like it shouldn't have been a problem. Most people, it wouldn't have been a problem. Nobunaga had already had to like work that hard to get there. When when, when you say he didn't have, he had to fight kind of to get what he had. It's not that he w- he came from non-noble birth or something. Like he, he wasn't poor when he grew up. He just, his family didn't like him and he had to fight them to to get his his rightful place yeah i think that's accurate accurate i would say um it's it's not so much that he was coming up from nothing it's that he always people were always trying to take things away from him that he saw as rightfully his Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know like this is an era where that's not necessarily an uncommon story but it does give him a bit of a persecution complex right right and and a lot of experience uh fighting i suppose yeah that that too and from all accounts he was an incredibly brutal person like like extremely talented but also just no mercy whatsoever he would do whatever he needed to do and when we get to this uh this 1560 uh imagawa planned march uh through owari we're looking at uh the imagawa uh alliance coming through with 25,000 guys against uh, an army and and Oda Nobunaga is not going to allow them through without a fight um his pride won't allow it uh it's too close to just like like he might as well just surrender to Imagawa at that point right like he mm-hmm. like his pride won't allow that to happen 
Um, right. Even, even though the smart thing would have been, you know, cut some sort of deal, maybe even get some sort of um, something trade out of it for, for him to walk by. But, you know, the, the, the smart thing won't work in this case. He's too prideful. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a very accurate uh, summation of what we're dealing with here. To his credit, I think the only deal that uh, Imagawa necessarily would have given him would have been to basically it, it would have involved some sort of subjugation. It would have involved some sort of mm-hmm. uh, vassalship. So he's got twenty five thousand guys coming towards him. He can raise about three thousand. This is an ex- this is an existential threat as far as he's concerned. Surrender isn't necessarily an option here, and with those numbers, it's basically impossible to defend conventionally, right? Um, a ten to one odds is is not a winnable battle on just a standard lineup on the battlefield sort of battle. So, given the circumstances, basically he decides that his only option is to go on the offensive and try to take the Imagawa by surprise. And, you know, some of this is, is good tactics. Some of this is, you know, the Imagawa army is camped in, you know, lands that the Oda had used for war games for decades. So they knew it, you know, like the back of their hands. Some of it is that the Oda clan had, because there were a lot less uh, soldiers available to them, they had spent a lot more time training them to be effective fighting units and not just handing scared peasants a sharp stick. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even a little bit of basic training can go a really long way in a battle situation. Can 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 will you be able to beat a, a samurai in one-on-one combat? Absolutely not. Will a couple of weeks a year of training, um, just basic drills? give you a a massive edge over whatever peasants the other ones are bringing? Absolutely. Every single time. It makes a huge difference. Oda Nobunaga was also a lot more open to using arquebuses in warfare. A lot of other people had tried them in battles and found that the really slow reload time was a massive liability. Uh, Matchlock guns also tended to fail really easily in wet conditions. So a lot of people had just gone like, this isn't better than a bow, forget about it. Oda Nobunaga had noted that the advantage uh, gunpowder gave to essentially punching through armor, um, it it was a little bit better at it than arrows. It gave them a little bit of advantage against armored opponents, and he felt like it it was worth it. He had also been working um, pretty carefully on tactics uh, with which to incorporate Arquebus warfare into his battle plans, not just relying on them solely. So he uh, developed a, a system where essentially there was like a, a three-phase uh, firing pattern where the arquebuses would shoot and then archers would, uh, like they'd kneel down to reload and archers would shoot over their heads uh, two or three times while they reloaded. So it was just a constant volley of fire, you know, alternating between bullets and arrows. Yeah, I, I wonder if others had just tried to replace archers with uh with handguns or um, with these arquebus and um, and found that uh, obviously they're not the same as bow and arrow. You can't use the same tactics. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. They tried to just sort of drop them into the exact same tactics. Thing is, those things don't have a long range, right? Um, like w- when I say arquebus, you can just you can just think of like a, any musket that you would see on like a you know like a, a reenactment of of War of eighteen twelve right. or whatever, right? Like the yeah. the British redcoats kind of thing. It's a it's an older version of that. They don't have range. Like they're really not accurate beyond 
generally effective range is considered like a hundred yards, right? So mm-hmm. when it comes to using them effectively, what uh, the Oda clan learned was that like, you have to get people within like uh, an effective killing distance. Uh, you have to incorporate them into your tactics alongside other things. Like you can't just expect the guns to do all the work for you. 12th of June, 1560, the Imagawa uh, army is camped out. It's uh, a hot day. They're not expecting anything. Uh, it's it's the afternoon. A bunch of the guys have taken off their armor because it's so hot. Uh, a lot of them have been drinking. Uh, when all of a sudden, Oda forces, using cover of a thunderstorm, like noise from a thunderstorm, basically show up uh, right outside the Imagawa camp before they even realize what's happening. It's a complete surprise. It's uh, it's not like a total massacre. Like enough of them rally back to a battlefield that there is actually a pitched battle here. But they're in such disarray and the Oda clan is so uh, decisive and they create so much chaos that it's an extremely effective opening to this battle. It's so effective, wow. in fact, that, uh, uh, that Imagawa Yoshimoto is in his tent and when the fighting starts, he doesn't realize that a battle has broken out. He thinks that his guys are just drunk and loud. (laughs) And he goes out to confront them to basically tell them to knock it off. And he goes out of his tent and there are Oda samurai standing there. Um, Oh, wow. So they they really got the element of surprise here. Yes. Massively so. It's commonly said that they actually kill uh, Imagawa right there in the camp. That's actually not true. He does manage to rally back to the battlefield, but he il- is killed on that battlefield. Mm. So his march on Kyoto is over before it begins. Really? They never get through Owari. This is the, uh, the battle of, uh, okay. Hazama. This is one of the more consequential battles in world history. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, 3000 guys, they managed to take out a full 25,000 person army, mostly by being very careful, by having a good element of surprise, by getting the initiative and by focusing on commanders when they're fighting, because the, the Imagawa have made it very easy to identify which ones are the commanders by not giving sort of the bulk of their, their, uh, their army, any sort of armor or decent weapons or anything. So by right. the time this battle is over, not only is Imagawa killed, all but two of their senior officers have also been killed on the battlefield. Oh, wow. So that army is basically over. It's, <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't have an army with just a bunch of peasants and no one to lead them. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's leaderless. Wow. And they, they essentially all surrender at that point because... It's partially like the 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 shock, right? It's it's partially just like the the massive amount of defeat. It's also partially partially like if you're only there out of fealty to like a feudal lord, and you just saw that dude killed. How loyal <laughs> are you feeling right at that moment? Totally. What's the point? <laughs> What's the point? Just go home. You know what? Swear fealty to the new guy. He seems great. Yeah. And obviously, yeah, smarter than the other guy. <laughs> yeah. That's and that's exactly what ends up happening here is a whole bunch of these uh, lesser clans that have been pledged to the Imagawa um, switch their allegiance to the Oda, and overnight we go from essentially the the Oda clan being a, a middling regional power to one of the most powerful 
clans in Japan. They they start picking up uh, uh, allegiances really, really quickly. They also start fighting anybody who stands up to them really, really quickly and really proactively. And as their army gets bigger, they get better and better at doing it. There are a couple of really big uh, gets really early on in this process. So the next year, 1561, um, a daimyo named Tokugawa Ieyasu pledges uh, to uh, Oda Nobunaga. Despite the fact that they were traditionally en- enemies, uh, he basically went, well, I, I think this is, I-, I think I can see where this is going and decides to, <laughs> right. he decides to pledge to Oda, no- uh, Oda Nobunaga. Um, the other major um, pickup at this point is a really unusual story in Japanese history. Well, in most history, to be honest, is is a uh, commoner um, who will, I mean, he's going to have like five different names. We're just going to use the one that everyone knows him by, which is uh, Toyotome Hideyoshi. Yeah, his dad was a foot soldier. He was uh, uh, what's called a sandal bearer. So basically like a, a groomsman in the army. So like serving uh um officers right he had shown such aptitude in specifically in the battle of uh okehazama that uh oda nobunaga basically went we need you leading people like you're actually a very effective fighter and a very effective leader i want you to keep that up i want you to develop these skills despite the fact that he's not noble whatsoever um this creates a lieutenant who is extremely loyal because i mean he would have <laughs> nothing without him um but it also just de- demonstrates to others that uh, uh oda nobunaga is not just interested in the old order of things he's also interested to some extent in meritocracy and it doesn't really matter how true that actually is toyotomi can be po- uh, pointed to as an example of that as just good pr right Absolutely. So, so as this army grows from its like three thousand mm-hmm. um, person starting point, does it retain the characteristics that helped them in that early battle? You know, like, or does it start? Do, do they continue to have people well trained and and use these more advanced tactics? Or as it grows, does it kind of uh, you know fall victim to its own size? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. Um, it's, it's a little bit of both. I mean, commanding an army of 3,000 is very different than commanding an army of 30,000, right? So there's certain things right. that just don't scale well. But a lot of the core fundamentals that helped really early on are going to remain. So specifically incorporating the archivist um, is really important. They find that it's a lot easier to train somebody to be effective using an archivist quickly than it is to train somebody to use a bow quickly. Mm-hmm. Which, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense when you give it a little bit of thought, right? Um, it's, it's, so, so it makes it a little bit easier to incorporate more uh, ranged fighters into the army with less training. Which means that it's not only samurai who are wielding arquebus. It's also peasants that they're, that they're giving these to. In fact, you kind of don't want your samurai to be the ones using them. Because those are people who have grown up trained in archery and are effective uh, archers. So we leave the bows with right. them. We give archivists to commoners. Um, also, yeah, continuing to train people, like just even, even you know, rudimentary training, uh, that's clearly paid off. Uh, I'm not sure that it keeps up to the same standard as those original 3,000 uh, people who were, you know, sort of direct um, sworn fealty to the Oda clan. Um, mm-hmm. but it, it, it does kind of try at least to stay away from that 
toss a sharp stick at a peasant model um, <laughs> when, when it can. Uh, but also, you know, rudimentary armor and things like that, right? Like it's not going to be, you know, samurai level armor, but, you know, giving people sort of like wicker almost armor that it's not great, but, you know, it keeps you from definitely dying on the first blow. Yeah. It's a piece of cloth. Yeah. So, so stuff like that is, is kind of incorporated into, into the, into the army as it grows. Um, yeah, your, your, your ratio though of, of uh officers or or nobles uh, which in this case it's it's kind of one and the same um does go down significantly compared to the number of peasants that are fighting um as the as the army grows bigger so yeah in, in some ways it conventionalizes but they do what they can to try and keep some of the the more novel tactics because they're hoping that it'll continue giving them an advantage over uh other armies as they retrain these new ones right so essentially they spend the next eight years or so uh, expanding, consolidating, winning battles, um, some lost battles, but definitely a lot more won than lost, and accepting fealty from from different lords. Essentially, it's a matter of giving people a choice, right? Do you want to fight us or do you want to swear to us? And, uh, you know, as the army gets bigger, less and less people want to fight them because um, most people who do lose. In 1568, something uh, really interesting happens, which is that, I mean, I think it's kind of clear at this point that um, Oda Nobunaga has gone beyond just, you know, wanting to protect Owari from a from a threat um, by, you know, being bigger than that threat. He's, he's clearly become the biggest uh, power or one of the largest powers in Japan, and he's showing no sign of stopping really, right? Remember, uh, remember the Shogun? Remember the Ashikaga family? Right. They've never really recovered from those problems of, of more than a century before uh, some of the infighting stuff that was happening. They've really diminished in sort of prestige. And in 1568, um, a member of the Ashikaga clan, uh, Ashikaga Yoshiaki, uh, comes to uh, Oda Nobunaga and asks for his support in overthrowing uh, his brother, Yoshihide. Uh, who is the current shogun. So the Yoshiaki wants to be the no, new shogun. And he comes to Oda Nobunaga for help uh, in overthrowing the current shogun. This is kind of a match made in heaven. The shogun to be, the the, the guy who wants to be shogun, uh, is able to sort of get the help of one of the largest and definitely the most successful army in Japan and in, in furthering his own you know personal, personal fortunes. And... Oda Nobunaga is able to get a like the most legitimate possible claim he could get in order to march on Kyoto to overthrow the shogun. Right. I, I can't think of any more plausible reason to, to go than helping someone that you claim is the, le, the legitimate shogun. Yeah. Anything else is a naked bid for power, which is a, you know, it's, it's a hard sell in the best of times. Um, Given the circumstances in Japan, I, I you know I, I'm sure you could make a case, and not too many people would argue with it. Um, but you'd be you'd you'd definitely be open to um, attack as uh, an illegitimate shogun, right? Um, you would essentially have to hold out for uh, legitimization from the emperor uh, before you'd really be safe from any um, you know equally as valid bids for the for the position. So this gives him, yeah, uh, you know, a, a, an air of legitimacy if nothing else. And he's happy to take it, uh, successfully invades Kyoto in 1568, overthrows the current shogun, and uh, Yoshiaki is, uh, is installed as the new 
shogun. And and this is a position that's really lost all, you know, kind of real power behind it uh, long ago. But, um, you know, it's it's part of his family's legacy and he's very happy to have it. So so at this time, where is the real power? Is it with the daimyo? Arguably, yeah. I mean, the, the country has been so fractured that um, the, the, the daimyo are ruling over their own particular corners of, of Japan and, and there's no centralized, uh, national authority, um, to speak of not, not in a, not in a real sense. Right. That's, right. that's, that's part of the reason like people sometimes argue over, uh, the, the name of the period, right. Uh, the Sengoku period, because Sengoku is a bit of a, uh, neologism, I suppose, uh, of Japanese, uh, uh, scholars, uh, after this period where it, it means the warring states period. And it is referring very specifically to the warring states period in China, which is a, a strong touchstone for, uh, Japanese historians for obvious reasons. And there's, there's kind of some talk about like, well, is that actually a legitimate name here? Because it's not as though, you know, so, some historians will argue, well, it, it was still all Japan. Like it's, it's more like warring warlords, uh, than warring uh -huh. states necessarily. But the, the counter argument to that is that like, well, all centralized power has functionally disappeared to such a, 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 a catastrophic extent that the daimyo are essentially uh, leading their own independent states to some extent. And any sort of overarching uh, structure that still exists is mainly invested in the emperor, but the emperor doesn't actually have any real political or military power. It's all, uh, you know, symbolic and ceremonial. And so right. without that, you know, real, uh, you know, real politique kind of, of uh, power behind it, that doesn't really mean a whole lot until someone can come along and put the pieces back together. I wonder, um, this is uh, complete speculation, but I, I obviously, <laughs> but I wonder if... Um, Part of that had to do with Japan being like an island and fairly isolated. I wonder if the same kind of thing played out uh, in a larger continent, if there would have still been that continuity despite all of these, you know, more or less independent states kind of fighting for centuries. Yeah, that's that's hard to say. I'm trying to think of like a, a, a very comparable um, situation and, and it's it's tough. Uh, islands nations are are really really tricky that way they they can either be very very fractured and very like really full of like little pockets that you know even despite nominal unification can remain fairly independent you know by, by certain other measures or you're looking at like a very homogenous society and i i think the fact that you know the the emperorship was as old as it was plays a big part in keeping it unified um, mm -hmm. I think that shared culture and language plays a big part in all of that. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that to some extent being an island is part of that, right? Like it's, it's, there's, there's such finite bounds that it's really easy for somebody to say, you know, all of this should be one, you know, political body of some sort. Right. Whereas, yeah, if you get, if you go down that road, uh, in, in Europe, say you get Napoleon essentially, and that doesn't really work out well for anybody. <laughs> So yeah, I, I I don't know. I don't know how much that's uh, that's the factor there. Well, and and for some reason I had forgotten about like the shared language and culture. Obviously, that's a huge thing. Mm -hmm. You know, in this internet age, 
you know, language barriers are so much lower, but I guess Europe, you know, every country in Europe did have a different language and, you know, probably similar culture, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, and I mean, if you go back to something, you know, analogous for Europe, you're essentially going back to like the fall of Rome, right? Where there's no more, there's, there's no more, uh, emperor in the West and all these Roman provinces end up being their own, uh, little political bodies with the governors sort of stepping into the role of like the head of state. Right. But like still, right. There's some sort of like, you know, there, there's tension, right. Between, uh, these, these smaller bodies trying to go their own way and this sort of history of, of, uh, of unification. Right. And it comes back and forth between, uh, you know, Charlemagne trying to, to establish a Holy Roman empire and, and uniting most of Western Europe and then that falling apart again. And then, you know, the, the later establishment of the Holy Roman empire and the, and, you know, the Holy Roman empire itself being a, a group of, you know, 200 different little principalities and, and bishoprics, right? Like, but, you know, but mm-hmm. all unified by the German language and like there, there's all this, this back and forth where, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Maybe if, it, if somebody had been quick enough, maybe if, uh, um, you know, the, the Eastern Roman empire had gotten their act together quickly enough and, and driven out the, the, the Goths and, and, uh, said, no, this is still all the Roman empire. Uh, I don't know, maybe they all would have still been, you know, speaking Latin to this day. Uh, but hmm. yeah, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe part of it is just that the continent is so big or feels so distinct that it's, it, it feels easier to let that go to some extent. I'm not sure. That's an interesting point though. I like that. So, uh, yeah, back to our, our, our brief friends of, uh, of convenience, uh, Oda and Ashikaga, it, it immediately like falls apart, like their alliance, right? They each try using each other to their own advantage and they get very suspicious of each other and then very angry at each other very quickly. So <laughs> one of the first things that Oda Nobunaga asks the new shogun for is uh, to just call a banquet and invite all the daimyo in uh in japan it's a party what's the what's the problem right (laughs) this is a test where um you're gonna fail either way because if you show up there uh there's a good chance you get slaughtered but if you don't show up there you can claim that uh you've disobeyed and disrespected the shogun and that's probably enough pretext for war given the period we're talking about Right. So he starts using uh, refusals to show up as pretext for war and invasion. Meanwhile, the the emperor, who's very like suspicious of Oda Nobunaga and his kind of uh, you know his ambitions, I suppose, um, starts uh, courting some of uh, some of the stronger holdouts and sort of looking to them for military support, uh, spreading rumors, things like that, and. The, the the immediate result of this is um, two of the uh, more powerful clans that are still not under Oda control, uh, the Azai and uh, Asakura, are both uh, uh, both end up going to war uh, very quickly uh, after the the installation of this new uh, shogun. The uh, this the so the shogun is also re- uh, recruiting a couple other families that haven't come under control the takeda come to come to mind he also starts recruiting outside of the traditional family structure he starts going to um, buddhist monks for support and this is a really interesting dynamic because on one hand 
Japan had been a strongly Buddhist culture uh, up until this point, and the Buddhist monks actually had quite a bit of wealth and uh, power, like militarily speaking. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and and um, you know they they were not necessarily super interested in getting involved in like little squabbles between the the daimyo, but because the shogun is a representative of the emperor. Um, and then has a little bit more authority. They're a little bit more willing to support there. But intention with that dynamic is that there's a significant sect of Buddhism. Remember we talked about earlier that is inherently suspicious of the daimyo system, that the whole shogunate system, uh, and encourages like active, uh, dissent against it. And they have power, uh, in the form of the Ikoiki, who are still hanging out up north in Kaga. Um, so it starts drawing all these other players into the conflict. And Oda Nobunaga is just not interested in it. Like he's looking at this whole thing <laughs> going, this is too much. This is too complicated. We got really, really close to doing what I wanted, which is like all the power in Japan. And it's starting to slip away. So he decides it's time for like very decisive action. He, he seems like a decisive guy. Very frustrated all the time. Like <laughs> he, he, he's, he's, he feels entitled. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean that in a way where it's like, oh, he's so entitled. Like he's been, mm-hmm. he's been raised to be entitled, right? Like he was taught from a child that he deserves a certain level of respect of wealth, blah, blah, blah. And, the fact that he has to keep asserting that seems to irk him a lot. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. So rather than getting into this whole thing, like he, he starts, he starts, uh, he sends army against the eco in uh, armies against the eco in the North, but he wants to make sure that everyone understands that he's not here to play. He decides to get out ahead of these, uh, Buddhist, uh, sects that are planning to, support the shogun and so he goes to uh basically the the, the biggest monastery in uh in japan it's uh, called enryakuji and he, he he goes there and he basically um it's it's a slaughter he burns the entire temple down uh or the the entire monastery down um and he kills everyone there everyone there's no quarter at all Women, children, doesn't matter if they're monks, doesn't matter if they're visitors. Everybody is killed. It is extraordinarily brutal. It does also take the rug out from under any uh, sort of monk-aligned forces that were planning to go up against the Oda clan. It does send a very powerful message. Now, when it comes to the Ikoiki, it doesn't necessarily make them stop so much as kind of enrages them even more. But, you know, we've got a very much like an animal backed into a corner sort of situation here, right? They understand that they're on the back foot. This uh, specific event gives him, uh, gives Oda Nobunaga uh, the nickname, the Demon Daimyo. People are horrified by this move. It's it's extremely... um, sacrilegious it's extremely brutal it seems over the top to most people but he's trying to send a message and the message is sent he's not really trying to get people to like him he's trying to get people to respect uh his power and in Mm. that regard it's effective i suppose 
So strategically, this this massacre did it, you know, significantly weaken the forces against them, or was it all entirely just about sending this horrific message? Yeah, I, I think it. I mean, it's a hard one to quantify because a lot of it is preemptive, right? It's hard to say how right. much these monks were going to be able to muster against the Oda forces. Um, but he didn't have to fight significant uh, mainstream Buddhist forces as a result of this. Um, right. So arguably tact- tactically uh, successful. Yeah. As far as the Ikoiki go, they were dug in so hard that it was going to take another uh, basically another decade to uh, root out all of the Ikoiki forces. It was very, very difficult. 1573, so two, two years later, uh, both the Azai and Asakura f- uh, families are defeated. And with that, essentially the Shogun no longer has any major forces backing him up militarily. Oda Nobunaga is so, so very angry about all of this. Um, oh, uh, also the Takeda was uh, that, that was the other family that uh, that he the shogun had recruited um, was defeated by uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu. Uh, one of one of the one of the lieutenants was sent to wage that war on his own. Um, it was actually a very hairy thing; like it was a near miss. Uh, Tokugawa was nearly uh, defeated in the whole thing, um, and at one point he asked for aid from Oda Nobunaga that he wasn't able to send because his forces were committed elsewhere. And essentially uh, Oda Nobunaga had to make a call as to whether or not he thought Tokugawa was going to be able to hold out or not and just left him to fend for himself, which uh, paid off, but it was really risky. This is what I'm talking about when when I'm saying this guy (laughs) is like making bids that are like do or die, like either it works or you lose your entire Eastern flank and one of your biggest uh, generals, like one of your most powerful generals. But so far things have been working out, I guess. Mm-hmm. Things are going very, very well for him. By 1582, oh, sorry. So he, he marches on Kyoto. He uh, drives out uh, Yoshiaki. He decides to spare his life as long as he commits to becoming a monk and never bidding for uh, the shogunate again, uh, which he agrees to. Um, this officially ends, uh, the Ashikaga, uh, Shogunate, 27th of August, 1573. It had lasted, uh, you know, 200 years. By 1582, Oda Nobunaga controlled over 30 provinces in Japan. Uh, he had the favor of the emperor, um, who actually supported him in that conflict against the Shogun. Uh, the emperor took the side of Oda Nobunaga over uh, Ashikaga Yoshiaki, which is a big, big move symbolically. It doesn't really help him militarily, but... Why, why would he have... Yeah. Uh, Oda Nobunaga had a lot of respect for the emperor, and, and the emperor felt that Yoshiaki was an opportunist uh, and mm. was contributing to further um, division in the in the country, essentially. Uh, so yeah, favor of the emperor, uh, had overthrown the shogun, um, was the most powerful leader in Japan, had the largest army in Japan. He was not named shogun. That never, that never happened. But, you know, he had, uh, revolutionized the military in Japan. He had, uh, you know, removed state support of Buddhism, had put protections in place for Christianity because he felt that 
contact with the West was part of what gave him his edge. And he saw that modernization was a way forward for Japan and that globalization was a, a way forward. You know, he had gone a very long way towards unifying the country again. There were only really a few holdouts left. And then in June of 1582, while he was stopped at a, a, a temple, uh, Honnoji, he was there for a tea ceremony, had just sort of a, a, a personal bodyguard, but was relatively unguarded. We're not entirely sure what the specific motivation was, but while he was at this temple, one of his generals, uh, Akechi Mitsuhide, decided to assassinate him while he was stopped there. Uh Maybe it was personal ambition. Maybe uh, he felt allegiance to uh, the previous shogun that, that had just been deposed. Uh, we, we don't entirely know. What we do know is that he took his uh, his entire army, lied to them about where they were going, lied to them about it being on Oda Nobunaga's orders, and didn't tell them where they were going until basically they got to this temple. And then explained to them Oda Nobunaga was a traitor and that they were there to overthrow him. Wow. (laughs) They surround this temple, set it on fire, invade. Uh, Oda Nobunaga and his his personal guard try to fight them off. There's just too many of them, though. And uh, Oda Nobunaga decides to uh, die by ritual suicide uh, rather than uh, being taken prisoner by uh, Akechi Mitsuhide. And that is the end of Oda Nobunaga, which is extremely fascinating because he's like on top of the world when this happens he seems untouchable and yet he lets his guard slip for one time and there it is one of the cup of tea (laughs) his oldest son is also killed in this raid um which or or rather forced into suicide i should say and uh yeah it really throws things into turmoil because his oldest son was his like expected heir right and it was a very trusted lieutenant in his in his army besides he was clearly set up to be the next uh you know the next in line but this you know c- killing both of them at the same time creates a bit of a succession crisis once again we we haven't checked in on a couple of people in a little while uh one of them that we we talked about earlier toyotomi hideyoshi he was the he was the commoner that managed to make it to uh the status of a general in Oda Nobunaga's uh, army, right? Mm-hmm. At the time of this assassination, uh, General Toyotomi is engaged in war uh, with the Mori clan. And it's going okay, but not great. Like they're under siege, basically. Or they, they have the Mori under siege. And while they have them under siege, they manage to intercept a messenger headed for the Mori clan. And when they read the, the message... It basically says it's from uh, it's from the assassin from Akachi Mitsuhide and is basically proposing an alliance with the Mori against uh, the remainder of Oda Nobunaga's allies. But the message is intercepted. So now Toyotomi knows Oda Nobunaga is dead. He knows Akachi Mitsuhide is the traitor and he knows that he was trying to get the, the, the Mori on side. Remember, oh. we talked about um, we talked about uh, the the poem at the beginning, right? Uh, mm-hmm. If the cuckoo doesn't sing, kill it. That refers to Oda Nobunaga, right? Absolutely brutal. Uh, coerces through violence. Is is unafraid to use violence as a solution to basically anything. The second line is, "If the cuckoo doesn't sing, coax it." 
Toyotomi Hideyoshi has a reputation for, yes, knowing when violence needs to be uh, carried out in order to further his ends, but also how to work with stuff, how to <laughs> how, how to make situations work to his own advantage beyond simply, you know, the surprise of battle and things like that. So he sends a message to the Mori who don't know that Oda Nobunaga is dead and basically tells them that um, he's willing to end the siege and accept their surrender as long as their military commander dies by ritual suicide. So basically he's saying, offer up this one person as a gesture and we'll break the siege. We'll call it, we'll call it even. We'll bring you into the fold. You can be our ally. We've shown you uh, clemency. And the Mori clan is going, that's great news for us, actually, because we thought we were going to be, you know, raised and pillaged. Um, <laughs> but they don't know that Oda, Oda Nobunaga is not uh, commanding anymore. They don't know that they have this potential ally. They think they're on their own. And so uh, they're being offered an out and they take it pretty quickly. Now that he's freed up from from this from the siege, Toyotomi can turn around and head immediately to track down uh, uh, to track down Akechi and make him pay for what he's done. Akechi, after after assassinating Oda Nobunaga, has basically declared himself the new leader of the Oda clan. Kind of, um, he's basically said that uh, Oda's uh, grandson is the new, you know, since his first son is dead, uh, his first son's son is the new leader, but because he's so young that Akechi is act acting as regent, but functionally mm, in charge classic. of the, functionally in charge of the, the, the army, right? Um, he's also expecting, you know, all of his major generals are tied up in conflicts. Toyotomi is supposed to be uh, fighting the Mori clan for a long time yet. He's not expecting Toyotomi to come after him immediately. Uh, but that's exactly right. what happens. That's exactly what happens. And Akechi is taken surprise. Uh, he doesn't really have the devotion of that many troops necessarily. Um, he did just assassinate uh, one of the biggest leaders that Japan has <laughs> right. ever seen. Not, not a real trustworthy guy. No, 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 no. Um, so he's declared himself leader. It's less than two weeks later that uh, Toyotomi comes down on him hard with his full forces and um, yeah Akechi tries running from the battle which is you know just super dishonorable uh, is chased down and killed he's sometimes uh, sort of derisively referred to as the 13 day shogun <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're in a spot where like yeah Oda Nobunaga's grandson is technically I guess uh, the new leader um, and Toyotomi is in a spot where he's got a lot of, uh, loyalty from the former Oda, uh, uh, forces, but he's also not a noble. So he's not, he doesn't mm. actually have any legitimate claim to basically anything. So he's forced to use that same, uh, regency excuse essentially to continue leading things but he's on very precarious ground. Now, it's kind of unclear what sort of end game Oda Nobunaga had in mind. 
you know like what happens when he's conquered all of japan what does that look like mm -hmm. toyotomi had like a very clear idea of what had gone wrong in japan over the past century and what he'd like to do to fix that and so now that he's in a spot where things are starting just starting to settle down a little bit he starts thinking about what that looks like and I, I don't mean by any means to, to suggest that the war is over. It's not. In fact, it's really hard for Toyotomi to keep those uh, troops together. Uh, he even ends up fighting a, a war for a little bit here against uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu, who essentially launches a, a, a war on behalf of one of Oda Nobunaga's other sons, who thinks they have a stronger claim than the grandson. It's a little bit messy. Um <laughs> That war fights to a stalemate. Uh, Tokugawa gets on board with uh, Toyotomi. They're, they're friends from there on out, more or less. They're kind of kept at a little bit arm's length. But, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. But Toyotomi really starts looking forward at the same time. Is like, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to get at. So first thing he does is he spends the next two years working actually alongside the emperor's people on trying to establish some sort of legitimacy, like man manufacture some legitimacy. And they go through all of these like family trees and stuff, trying to find a noble house that he might be a part of just to make it seem like this might be like in any way legitimate under the system as, a, as everybody else understands it, right? Because people do want him to lead, but they also don't want to completely upend the entire like Japanese worldview, right? Right, so if they can find any tenuous connection to make him, so they can even claim that he has some sort of noble blood, then makes things a lot easier. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, he's he's married into a noble family, but like that's still not quite the same thing. Like at least his kids would have noble blood. Oh, uh, like, okay. You know, he's still a little bit. It's 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 very it's very very tricky. It's a fine balancing act. Once he's finally kind of adopted into uh, a, a family um, and has like, yeah, again, just sort of that plausible deniability, <laughs> he starts he starts kind of working on other stabilizing measures. He, he really sees the last hundred years as an issue of lack of stability, of things being out of balance, right? So on one hand, he's, he's wrapping old uh, enemies into the fold whenever possible. So it's not always about the war. It's about sometimes, you know, offering or, or making token peace offerings to people so that they can accept peace without sacrificing their sense of honor uh, to some extent. Like, you know, peace without humiliation, essentially. Yeah. And he gains a, he gains a reputation for being relatively skilled at negotiating those types of deals. When he needs to, he goes to war. The last major uh, enemy that, uh, that that's a holdout in in kind of the mainland is the uh, Hojo clan. That's actually one of the original three clans that was uh, marching on the Odas at the very beginning of all of this. And the Hojo are right. yeah, the Hojo are centered kind of around uh, in the in the Kanto region, so around Edo, which will become Tokyo. The, the the Hojo clan is finally defeated in uh, the 1590s, or, or sorry, in 1590. And with that, like anybody else that's still outstanding sort of either is so small that they're not a problem or they're just going ahead and swearing fealty. Like there's really no uh, daimyo left that are able to 
confront uh, Toyotomi at that point. So Toyotomi is really the one that finishes the uh, the work of unifying all of Japan. The problem is hanging on to that unity, right? Like making it stick. Hmm. He actually gives that Kanto region to Tokugawa specifically because he wants him far away from Kyoto. Uh, it's a good port. It's an excellent area. It's very like defendable militarily. So it looks like a good prize. Like you couldn't really turn it down necessarily um, for any good reason. But it does keep him far away, which Toyotomi prefers after the the war that they fought together or against each other, right. I suppose. And and this is when they're like friends, but not really friends, kind of frenemies. Sure. Um, yeah, allies of convenience, I suppose. They both saw, I mean, they were both former lieutenants of Oda, no, Oda Nobunaga. And, um, you know, they, they saw the utility in the relationship that the two of them shared. But, you know, Toyotomi didn't entirely trust him. Uh, Tokugawa was a pretty ambitious guy. Um, He's also a very patient person, which unnerved Toyotomi to some extent. Uh, Remember the the third stanza of the poem, right? If the cuckoo doesn't sing, wait for it. Oh. Looking inwards, not going to to as many battles, Toyotomi uh, looks to things like crystallizing the class structure he sees as a commoner who moved up himself he sees some of that possibility of moving up as being almost too attractive i think to some people and so by crystallizing uh class roles he saw that as being a way to uh keep um japanese society from changing too much and to keep people sort of content with their station. This is a very like Confucian idea of how a a society should function, right? Um, But he sees the ikoiki, for example, almost as a symptom of people feeling too socially mobile. Isn't that like particularly ironic from someone who who was very socially mobile? I would 100% agree with that, yes. (laughs) But from the from the other side of it as somebody who was so socially mobile he understands not only the allure of it but also how many people don't make it Mm. you know like he has a very he has a first-hand perspective on that in a way that none of the nobles around him do well and i guess like if he he's himself is an example of how that social mobility can destabilize society and uh if his gold is more stable then i I suppose it makes some sort of sense Mm -hmm. yeah there's an internal logic at least i I, you know yeah might not necessarily agree with the with the outcomes or even the logic behind it but you can see how somebody gets there right right yeah so he starts putting into place um you know what's generally known as like sumptuary laws so ideas about like what people can or can't own or buy based on class um you know a lot of times stuff like that is like oh you can't wear a certain color if you're a certain class or you know you can't buy certain fabrics but a lot of that extends to uh weapon control as well so Uh legislating who can and can't own a sword for example i mean he goes on an entire campaign throughout the countryside uh it's called the sword hunt um where he goes like he sends the army through like like farmhouses searching for swords and destroying them if people weren't sufficiently uh, high born enough to own a sword. 
entirely to avoid future, uh, you know, commoner rebellions. It's not, it's not all quite this dramatic and crystallizing. There's a lot of like really boring trade and tax laws that go into place at this point. Uh, he puts into place what's known as a hostage system. So all the daimyo are asked to send a close family member uh, to live in comfort and uh, splendor in Kyoto, right? With <laughs> right with him, where he, they're very nearby if he ever needs to make a point about anything. You know, it's it's a right. it's a system that comes up every you know it, it comes up every once in a while in in various kind of imperial centralized systems where they're trying to get uh, a more decentralized uh, system under control. Um, a a, a well-known example in Western history would be Louis XIV requiring nobles to come live at Versailles, right? So it's less of an overt threat. That one's actually really interesting because it's a very like economic threat, as in you're required to spend so much money to keep up with the trends to be um, you know, not shunned when you're at Versailles, that it cripples you financially from being able to raise armies, which is um, oh. a fascinating use of fashion as as warfare. Uh, but yeah, this isn't that. Right. This is more just a send. Yeah, send one of your daughters, and we'll kill them if you get out of line. Um, that's that's there's there's no, you know, there's no finesse. That's straightforward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, <laughs> the the message is very clear there. He does start running into a bit of a problem though when it comes to keeping people happy, which is something that we, we talked about at the beginning of this, this second half, which is how do you deal with people who have known warfare their entire lives? How do you deal with a society that, you know, ha- has been at war so long that entire conceptions of what a person's life looks like, uh, how one attains honor, um, all of that is tied into warfare in such a way that it's assumed that warfare is perpetual. What do you do with all of those people when war is over? It's a hard adjustment to make. It is speculated um, at this point in uh, Toyotomi's life that he may have contracted syphilis. Regardless of the reason, though, his decision-making skills after about 1590 or so do start going downhill significantly. He seems to be mentally deteriorating um, Mm -hmm. at a significant rate. Um, There are also other very good reasons for that. Like he, he loses a lot of very close family members in a very short period of time, which can also be like extremely difficult for, for people and can have massive uh, impacts on people's uh, decision-making abilities. That loses them to natural causes or or were they murdered or assassinated? Yeah. Lots of natural causes. He loses a daughter around the same time as he loses his mother, Um, you know, to disease. Uh, It's, it's not, Mm. you know, it's it's just one of those it's a it's a it's a series of personal tragedies and it's a it's a person who may already for other reasons be losing uh competent decision making faculties mm-hmm. it's a bad combo for you know running a nation <laughs> he decides for whatever combination of reasons possibly to keep his daimyo happy possibly to you know be for, for his own personal ambitions uh, it's hard to say. He decides that really the ultimate, you know, military ambition, the ultimate test is to try to overthrow, like invade and overthrow China. Oh boy. Yeah. He's feeling real big and real hard with his 200,000 person army. And I get it. <laughs> That's a lot of people. In fact, when he sails all those people across 
uh, the Sea of Japan and lands them in Korea. It's one of the largest amphibious landings in history up until like pretty recently, like within the last century kind of thing. Right. It's a lot of people. He's kind of just assuming that for, I don't know what reason that Korea is just going to kind of let him through. <laughs> they don't, they don't uh, let the invading force through, you know, you got to keep in mind that, that Korea and their relationship to China is, um, you know, it's an old one at this point and it's a little bit precarious, but like it's built on certain assumptions. And, and, and one of those assumptions is that Korea is going to act as a buffer state between China and any of the nations to the south who might want to invade because it's clearly the most obvious place to to land right it's it's by far the easiest place to invade if you're coming from anywhere south of japan or japan itself um, right so you know part of their independence is predicated on their usefulness to china as a buffer state and so yeah they're gonna fight back with the first invasion uh in 1592 they managed to take ma uh, major, you know, cities in Korea relatively quickly. Like they take Busan, they take Seoul, they take Pyongyang. They basically get as far north as the Chinese border within the first few months of fighting. It's pretty quick. You have 200,000 people who have spent their entire lives fighting, going up against, you know, Korean peasants who have not who have lived a very, very <laughs> peaceful life in that time frame, they're just not ready. When they get to almost the Chinese border, the, the Chinese army shows up and it goes badly for the Japanese forces. I don't think they really understood just how many people China can put in the field or just how good their army is. They're driven back down through Korea um, and are, are basically on the Korean coast for the next couple of years. In this time, they're telling themselves they're going to rally. They're going to make another push for China. It's going to all go well. Um, Toyotomi is getting more and more delusional about the chances of a successful invasion. He's making demands to the Chinese court, which are increasingly uh, outrageous. So keeping in mind that they were just soundly defeated in a war, Toyotomi is sending the, the emperor uh, messages basically saying, fine. We'll accept your surrender, your surrender, China's surrender, as long as you, as long as you give one of your own daughters to be a consort to the Japanese emperor, not even married, but a consort. Wow, that's bold. And we'll accept your surrender if we dis, dis, uh, divide Korea into two, with the north <laughs> half being under Chinese control and the south half being under Japanese control. How does that sound? And China's going, what, what are you talking about? Who is this guy? And they send, you know, counter offers, which are basically, tell you what, we'll, we'll give you the title of King of Japan as long as you subjugate yourself to China and, <laughs> you know, do all the other stuff that China expects out of all of their, you know, peripheral nations, right? And Toyotomi is just massively insulted by all of that. And, you know, talks break down. In 1597, they try again, invading through Korea. This time, the Koreans have been, you know, they've seen what the Japanese can do. They're a little bit smarter about using the terrain, and the Japanese forces don't get nearly as far this time before they're turned back. It goes really, really badly. 
this time the Chinese army didn't even have to come in. Like the Koreans repelled them basically. Uh, my understanding is yes. I'm not sure if they had any like indirect support from the Chinese army, mm. but from what I understand, they're essentially repelled by Korean forces this time around. Generals don't really know how to break this to Toyotomi. So there's a lot of like telling him that things are going well while they're not kind of stuff. Right. Especially given presumably his mental state is pretty not great at this point, given his demands to the Chinese and whatnot. Mm hmm. Yeah, another thing that he's going through in this time is that he also doesn't have a son. So he's also concerned about secession. And this goes right back to the very beginning, right? Like the Onion War, um, where the, the Shogun was concerned about succession, right? He does a very similar thing, which is that he names his nephew his successor. And then six months later, a son is born. Oh, no. It's the exact same situation. And he's not entirely sure how to proceed because he knows what happens last the, the last time the, this is what tore the country in half in the first place resulted in in more than a century of of civil war i've heard a bunch of stuff about the nephew and like his stability um in terms of just like being a very volatile very terrible person i also suspect that some of his terribleness is exaggerated um, by the fact that he basically went through a smear campaign to try and like ruin, you know, his good name so that Toyotomi's mm -hmm. son could be, you know, named unambiguously his heir. This all culminates in basically Toyotomi uh, tracking down the, the nephew and essentially forcing him to uh, kill himself by suicide uh, just to keep from any loose ends being uh, being left so there's only one heir so he kills his nephew uh just to make sure that his son doesn't have any competition brutal the, the nephew he had just recently named as his heir yeah that's the one um man this also has the unintended effect of meaning that his son is basically the only other male uh toyotomi alive because keep in mind toyotomi is newly noble he doesn't have a big diverse family where he can pull some cousin from and, you know, say, yep, this is the new one. Those don't exist. The nephew is that. Right. He knew that he was dying. He knew that he was on his way out long enough in advance to think about what that was going to mean for succession, because he also knew that he wasn't going to live very long into his son's life. So he decided to set up what he called the Council of Five Elders, which was a sanctioned body of regents to help, help his son rule until his son was old enough to take over himself. These elders uh, included uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu uh, and four others, and they weren't necessarily selected for like their unity on anything. In fact, they seem to have been selected for the fact that the five of them were somewhat in tension. And likely the rationale there is that if the five of them are always bickering over stuff, none of them is going to have enough influence to take over um, before uh, Toyotomi's son is old enough to do so. Right, there's some logic there I can see. Yeah, it's a very like spheres of influence, balance of power sort of idea. Very yeah. like, very like seventeenth century Europe kind of thing. 
<laughs> Toyotomi dies in 1598, leaving the country in the hands of the, the five elders. And the first thing that they do is uh, issue a proclamation in Toyotomi's name, calling for the withdrawal of all troops from Korea back into Japan to end that conflict. Uh, clearly, it's something they had wanted to do for some time. Nice. Well, and I mean, it, it, it seems like the only sane thing to do at the point. Like They were not winning that war. Pretty, there was Pretty straightforward move there. Yeah. Oh, 100%. But note that they also did it under his name so that it would have the appearance of him having made a good decision at the mm. end of his life. His life. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, probably a kindness. So this brings us to the third line of the poem. Uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu, who had been involved in all of this from the get-go. He was one of uh, Oda Nobunaga's earliest uh, lieutenants um, and had been content to just sort of support people all the way along. So so he had been there in that original like 3,000-person army that repelled the army 10 times larger. Uh, not in that one. He was he, he signed up in the first round after that. Oh, okay. Um, no, he was from a, he was from a separate province. Um, they were traditionally enemies of Awadi. Um, but he set that aside when he saw, uh, the potential in Oda Nobunaga after he uh, right. defeated, uh, the enemy forces. He had a reputation as an incredibly patient person. He was also a lot more conservative than either Oda Nobunaga or, uh, Toyotomi. You know, he had, he had fought, uh, with, Toyotomi early in the succession crisis, but had supported him ever after that, had gotten the Kanto region in, in exchange for that, and had basically spent his time consolidating local power while, you know, on a national level supporting uh, Toyotomi. Uh, built Edo Castle in the, in the process, which was extremely strong for the time period. But with, uh, with Toyotomi gone, uh, and as part of this council, he sort of was in a weird spot because a lot of people knew that there had been tension between him and Toyotomi. And because of his affiliation with Oda Nobunaga, there was some sense that he was probably going to try and make a bid for leadership. This is exacerbated in um, 1599 when one of the other five, uh, Maeda Toshie, uh, dies. Maeda had been tasked with actually like teaching um, Toyotomi's son how to rule. So he was like in Osaka castle with him, like teaching mm. him how to read and write and like teaching him lessons about being a good ruler. And with Maeda dying and Maeda had also been a good peacekeeper on the council with Maeda dying, uh, that task of raising Toyotomi's son fell to Tokugawa. And there was a concern that, Basically, he was going to set uh, the child up as a puppet and take over the exact way Toyotomi had taken over for uh, Oda Nobunaga's grandson. Right. And it's this weird spot where it's like, you know, there were several assassination attempts on Tokugawa, which makes him really hostile. And him getting, you know, kind of defensive makes people think that he's actually hostile towards others and more likely to make a bid for power, which makes them more scared of him, which makes them, you know, more defensive against Tokugawa. And like th these, these lines just sort, they, they, they sort of, 
they fall into these ruts, right? Like they start falling mm-hmm. into this pro Tokugawa camp and this anti Tokugawa camp. Um, you know, Tokugawa supporters in the East and Toyotomi supporters in the West. And it starts looking very quickly like the piece that had been put together by Toyotomi was not necessarily all that long for this world. This all falls apart relatively quickly. Like we're talking about in the span of a year that armies are being raised again. And again, I think this comes back to that, like that feeling that like everybody has been fighting for so long. It's just what they know how to do. It's very clear that access to Kyoto is going to be the main uh, decider of this conflict. And remember, uh, Tokugawa is coming from Edo, from Tokyo. So he's he's far to the east. He's got a ways to go. There is a very specific mountain pass he has to get through uh, in Owari, actually, um, or just north of Owari. It's 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 currently in, in Owari province. I don't think it was at the at the time. Uh, Gifu. This this place is very much like this is where that battle is going to happen. So the the Toyotomi side is trying to shore it up as quickly as possible. The Tokugawa side is trying to get troops there as quickly as possible, and in October of 1600, the two forces finally clash. It's called the Battle of uh, Sekigahara, and it is a decisive Tokugawa victory. It's it's not even close. And it's a weird one, too, because even though things seem so set beforehand, there are people who are defecting from the Toyotomi side to the Tokugawa side as he's marching up to the battle like very shortly before kind of thing where numbers are shifting right up until the battle. And he gets word from a couple of warlords that basically say, I'm going to line up on the Toyotomi side and then I'm going to pretend to be on their side, but I'm actually going to fight for you, which, you know, is, is nice and all, but like also that's what somebody who's trying to play both sides would say. (laughs) Totally. Because what you would do is, line up and if things start going badly then you go like oh yeah this was the plan all along and turn around right but if the toyotomi side is winning then you just never defect and you're still on the winning side neither way you end up one uh, on the winning side so it's not something that tokugawa can rely on he's very nervous about all that but comes down to the battle and uh ultimately numbers are on his side uh you know fighting forces are on his side and he uh, soundly defeats the Toyotomi forces. Why? Why were there so many people defecting, or or joining him? I guess right up until the battle started. Like Tokugawa was a much uh, more stable uh, ruler. Uh, mm-hmm. He had several. <laughs> he had several adult sons, which is a weird way to start this list of things. But I, I mean, given the the number of succession crises that we've had. That's an important thing, right? And and they're you know they're old enough to be leading their own battles and and helping him out in battles and things like that. Like there's a good stable base there. If you know when when Toyotomi had been working towards stability in Japanese culture, the one place that he wasn't able to provide that was in succession, and that's why it caused him so much pain, right? Right. Tokugawa has that innately, and there's sort of this sense of like him being a natural progression from uh toyotomi because he's originally an oda lieutenant because he's been there all along because he's um you know done such a good job of dealing with his own region within the context of the wider empire right like he he was seen as very like he's seen as conservative but he's seen as (laughs) stable and he's seen as uh level-headed 
And that's something that after, you know, close to a decade of uh, a leader making progressively poorer decisions seems very, very attractive. And it's sort of like, okay, well, do we want the the five-year-old boy who will need regions for another, you know, minimum a decade? Or do we want this guy who can step into the role immediately and has right. a natural progression for getting there? Right. Yeah. And, you know, again, you still do have both sides of that, right? Like both of those are pretty legitimate things given the circumstances. But um, the way things fall out, you know, Tokugawa seems to be the one that actually has the situation in hand. Uh, and that's where that whole like wait for it thing comes in, right? He's waited for his opportunity. Now that his opportunity has come up, he's taking it. So he wins at Sakigahara. Um you know, he uses that defeat to, you know, heavily uh, consolidate power, right? So basically everyone that he defeats, he takes away land, he takes away troops. Sometimes he takes away titles even, or takes, you know, certain provinces from one family and gives it to another. So everything he takes from that defeat, he gives to his allies. So this serves two purposes. Number one, it strengthens his side if people want to try it again. Mm-hmm. Number two, it, de- it de- demonstrates to all of Japan that if you join Tokugawa's side, you'll be well paid for it. Right. Further increasing like the likelihood of people joining him. It's, it's, a, pretty, it's a pretty solid carrot stick combo he's got going on there. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. You know, there isn't really another major battle. He's going to spend the next few years fighting Toyotomi loyalists. Um, but really after that one one very decisive battle and him taking control of of Kyoto that's the end of the game in uh 1603 uh in March of 1603 uh emperor go yose bestows the title of shogun on tokugawa ieyasu something that neither oda nobunaga or uh toyotomi were able to gain in their own lives now is that Mostly because like Tokugawa is of noble birth and Toyotomi wasn't, or are there other factors there as well? That I I would say is a, a massive part of it. Oda Nobunaga never really had full control, and there was still, you mm. know, it, it you know it, it's hard. It's a hard look when you're taking the person who overthrew the previous shogunate and taking that exact person and making them shogun. That seems an awful lot like the emperor getting involved in politics, which he was not supposed to do. But, you know, the shogun had been uh, overthrown. We don't need to get into the whys and hows. And (laughs) now Tokugawa had united the, the country. He demonstrated his ability or his value as a military commander getting the title just sort of made it official, you know, it legitimized Mm -hmm. that. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think having a a family name really helped there. I think that, um, the stability of his rule really helped there. Keep in mind that Toyotomi had basically immediately turned around and invaded China, which is like a really hard person to like nominate, I guess, or, or, or support Mm -hmm. as Shogun. Like it's a bad decision and and on top of the the fa- the familial problems, you know, not having an heir, being from uh, low birth, that's a really hard person to make shogun. Tokugawa more fits the 
uh, traditional understanding of what a shogun should be. He's from a, a noble family. He's strong militarily. He shows leadership capabilities. If they're looking for a way to put Japan back the way it was before this all started, he's your candidate. Mm -hmm. And there aren't actually a lot of candidates left, to be honest with you, because at this point in time, there's less than 250 daimyo in Japan, period. And most of them are from 12 families. It's extraordinarily reduced and it's extraordinarily uh, condensed. There are only so many options. Mm -hmm. They kind of, like in a certain way, they kind of got lucky that Tokugawa was powerful enough to take control there. If maintaining that order is your your end goal here. Right. I suppose if he had not come along, it could have just been hundreds of more years of this uh, civil war fighting or whatever. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Very easily. So yeah, he's made Shogun. Uh, he's made Shogun in 1603. He actually abdicates the Shogunate in 1605. So only two years later in favor of his son. Um, Tokugawa is in his sixties when he's made Shogun. Like he's already pretty old. Um, he makes his son Shogun partially to facilitate an easy transfer of power. You know, just no, no muss, no fuss. Um, partially because some of the ceremonial stuff that goes along with being Shogun is kind of annoying. And what Tokugawa really wants to focus on is stamping out the last of the, the resistance. So, uh. and besides, because it's his son, he can make the decisions still. And his son will just, re will, will just enact them. Um, so he still retains most of the actual power that goes along with it. This just frees him up and he spends the next decade or so of his life going around, uh, consolidating power, stamping out the last little bits of resistance. This sort of ends in 1615 when, um, Toyotomi's son, Hideyori is, uh, he, he makes a pretty half-hearted, to be honest with you, uh, bid for power. Um, he had been left alive, you know, after Tokugawa took over, mainly because he was a child, mainly because he wasn't really thought of as much of a risk. He tried a half-hearted bid for power. It went really badly. Uh, 1615, uh, Tokugawa uh, besieges Osaka Castle, and uh, yeah, Toyotomi Hideyori is is killed in in that battle, uh, ending the Toyotomi line at two. And with that, there are no other. Uh, legitimate candidates to contest Tokugawa uh, legitimacy for for the shogunate. This uh, establishes what's known as uh, yeah the Tokugawa shogunate or sometimes the Edo period because the Tokugawa family rules out of Edo. Mm -hmm. Big changes come in in the first you know thirty years or so. Uh, you know they they're going to further restrict weapons uh what's what's uh, you know what people are allowed to carry they're going to further uh, crystallize class stratification and hereditary roles they're going to sort of transform the role of the samurai in in uh society and really carve out a place for a warrior class in peacetime what that actually meant um from sort of a, a ruling perspective he's also going to make some pretty big moves on the external influences side first off and, and i mean I, I should i should specify ieyasu dies in 1616 so the year after uh the defeat at edo castle or at uh, osaka castle um so he, he he lives just long enough to see uh his son with no um uh competitors and and dies a year later so this is all being enacted by his uh, son but more actually by his grandson 
so they actually end up outlawing Christianity in uh, Japan. There are there's there's a lot of speculation as to why. The classical interpretation of it is that like he sees Christianity as like too much of a, a threat in some way, and um, you know I, I think that's an incomplete look at it. Part of it is that he's trying to reestablish a place for um, state religion in Japan. Keep in mind that like the place mm-hmm. of Buddhism had been like significantly reduced after uh, Oda Nobunaga had you know crusaded against Buddhism. Um, but on the other hand, Buddhism had become uh, sort of powerful by its own right in Japan at that point in time, right? So the Tokugawa's crusade for what's known as Neo-Confucianism, which is basically like a combination of, uh, you know, Confucian philosophies uh, as applied to more like uh, civil life. Uh, And then on top of that, incorporating both uh, Buddhist and Shinto uh, traditions into sort of people's personal and daily life uh, without giving it the the sort of state-sanctioned power that it would have had beforehand. Mm, so more like a more of a, a traditional role in society to help shape people's um, behaviors more than you know an institution yeah i think that's fair and and in a lot of ways you still see uh, a little bit of fallout of this in japan to this day where where um you know most people will have both uh buddhist and shinto uh rights uh of some sort at some point in their life right Right. Um, it, it's it's very common. I think I saw the the the, the current stat is something like sixty uh, percent of people in Japan have uh, a Buddhist shrine uh, in their home to this day, and yet it's not necessarily like a considered a, a strong um, a strongly religious society. It's more that there's a, a social aspect to a lot of that. Yeah. So you know, weddings are Buddhist, funerals are Shinto. Uh, is kind of an easy like rule of thumb as to how those things fit into life. But yeah, people people visit vo- both shrines and temples uh, as a as a pretty regular part of their life. Um, so yeah, there's Christianity and specifically the interference of Jesuit uh, missionaries in all of that doesn't really have a place in society as the Tokugawa shogunate uh, conceives of it. So mm-hmm. they, they end up outlawing it. There's also to some extent a, there's, there's an aspect of, um, remember that all, all the, all the traders are, are landing in the South, right? In Nagasaki, a lot of daimyo who convert to Christianity are in the South and those states in the South, which are, are also to the West, you know, uh, Japan is kind of on a diagonal if you're using a, a traditional, uh, you know, cardinal directions, um, those states down to the south uh, are some of the holdouts against Tokugawa. So there is an aspect of kind of punishing daimyo who had converted to Christianity um, because the ones who were enemies of the Tokugawa shogunate uh, were also, in general, the ones who had converted to Christianity. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so there's there's a few things going on there. Uh, Besides that, I think it's worth noting that the time frame that we're talking about here, right, the kind of the 1630s or so, is smack dab in the middle of the 30 years war in Europe, um, which is a very, you know, it's a lot shorter, but in a lot of ways, it's very similar to uh, a lot of what we talked about in the Sengoku period, which is a lot of states who are neighbors of, uh, to each other using the pretext of a much larger conflict to sort out, um, you know, local squabbles 
a lot of whether or not you end up Protestant or Catholic in the Thirty Years' War has more to do with which way your neighbors went um, more than necessarily uh, a well-reasoned uh, theological position. That's not necessarily always true, but like there is a significant uh, uh, dynamic that way in the Thirty Years' War. And if you're looking for stability and you're looking at the Thirty Years' War and its source in the Reformation and, and sort of the fallout of the Reformation, I can see why somebody might look at it and go, this is not necessarily uh, a stabilizing force in society. <laughs> totally. I mean, even just looking at... Um, the influence of, of outsiders in Japan, if you want to have stability, having all of these new ideas flowing in probably isn't going to be the best thing. Mm -hmm. And they look at the example of the Ikoiki, uh, you know, zealotry um, as, as related to Buddhism and, and the um, their attempts to kind of remake, remake society, um, you know, invigorated by that religious zeal. And, and I, I think there's an aspect of like, yeah, well, we can we can reduce that zeal with you know, by removing the, the types of sanctions we had for Buddhism, but you know, where, how, how do we control that with, with Christianity? And the answer there is, is just remove access, right? Drive out the, mm -hmm. drive out the Jesuits. They also start restricting trade with, uh, with foreigners, uh, by, by foreigners, I mean, Westerners. Um, they do keep, uh, one port open and specifically the Dutch are allowed to trade there. Um, so they're not completely cut off. But for the most part, foreigners are mandated to keep out of Japan altogether um, on pain of death, actually. And Japanese people are not allowed to leave Japan, or if they do, they're never allowed to come back. Uh, and this isolationism is part of that instinct to kind of freeze Japanese society in time, right? To stabilize everything. If, mm -hmm. we, if we keep outside uh, influence to a minimum, then you know, we can't, you know, then we won't end up in the place that we were before. You know, it was, it was, it was Chinese trade that put us where we were. It was the arrival of the Portuguese that put us where we were. Um, you know, it's, it's sometimes easier to look outside your society than, than within for the reasons that those sorts of things happen. Totally. And, and you can kind of understand the logic there, even if one doesn't necessarily agree with it. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, you also can't argue with results, which is that the Tokugawa shogunate <laughs> is, going to last for 260 years with yeah. almost perfect peace that entire time. It's honestly kind of a boring time to talk about because, you know, not a lot happens. It is extraordinarily stable, like yeah. more so than most periods of most places in the world. Um, Especially given the, the preceding centuries. Yes. Yeah. This could very easily have been a, in, a, in a place that, you know, over the over the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, uh, Japan just ends up a fractured mess of warring states that entire time. We were extraordinarily yep. close to that. And it's really through these three particular men who are the subject of the, the, the poem I keep re retur uh, returning to that keep Japan from becoming exactly that. Uh, you know, one, one through extreme violence, one by, uh, you know, negotiating things and, and, and structuring things and, uh, one by, you know, being patient and, you know, putting things back the way that they, uh, that they were when the time was right and, and not before there is, there is one other, um, proverb about these three, um, great unifiers as they're called in Japan that I really like. I, I, I can only imagine that you've, you've had, uh, mochi when you were living in Japan. 
Um, oh yeah. You know how it's made, right? Sorry. I, I got to participate in making it nice. on uh, new year's. Yeah. How do you, how do you make mochi? Uh, you beat it, you beat rice with a hammer, basically. Yeah. You pound rice with a giant wooden mallet, usually two people yeah. at the same time taking turns. Yeah. It's wild yeah. to watch. Um, and you, you basically beat it until it's a, a, a just a goopy mess. It's, it's, it's lost all structure and it makes this, this, this weird, um, I don't even know how to describe it. They'll call them rice cakes, but it's not cake. It's, it's almost more like toffee in consistency. And, and, uh, yeah, it's a traditional new year snack and, and, uh, snack at other times too. Um, there's a saying, uh, about these three men that, uh, you know, uh, the first one, uh, beat the rice and the second one needed the rice, but the third one got to eat it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I like that. And this one's like a little bit more critical of change, right? Like it's, it's this idea that like the first two kind of stuck their necks out there and the third one got to reap the benefits. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is kind of accurate in, t in terms of like how this, how this process turned out. I, I don't think you get the stability of Tokugawa without the, um, you know, the societal changes put in place by Toyotomi. He, Tokugawa didn't really seem to have those grand ideas. I don't think he would have made any major societal changes. Likewise, you don't get Tokugawa without the disruption that's caused by the rapid expansion of Oda Nobunaga. But Oda was not prepared to rule Japan. Like he was not, you know, if he, if he had, it would have been, you know, under a similar iron fist. Um, mm -hmm. you, you don't, you don't get the stability there. You really need the touch of all three people in order to, uh, end up with, uh yeah a, a 260 year long piece and i don't know the collaborative nature of that is kind of interesting the idea that maybe there isn't one person who can uh completely transform a society from from one thing to another maybe you need different types of people involved maybe it's it's not doable by a single person is is really intriguing to me and yeah, that is interesting like the the tokugawa name is associated with that long period of peace but really like he didn't i mean i i want to say he didn't do that much he did lots but you know he wasn't involved in the the massive changes that needed to take place before mm -hmm. he could kind of like finish it off put the put the cherry on top basically put yeah. the icing on the cake that's that's the metaphor i wanted there we go um yeah i i agree i think i think he would have been an extremely competent local warlord and probably right. you know expanded his his regional influence and that's probably about it uh without yeah. those, those other two so anyways that is the story of the sengoku period in japan the amount of stuff i had to like skim over to make this whole thing work is just enormous the the amount of material that comes out the, the amount of intrigue and backstabbing that comes out of this period is is absolutely massive um you you can really only get to a place where you're summarizing it without going on and on forever. Um, so there's, there's lots of other stuff out there, but in broad strokes, that's how it works out. We go from a, a major succession crisis through a couple more succession crises, uh, you know, 150 years of, of civil war. Uh, and then, yeah, it, it manages to result in one of the most stable periods in, in human history. And it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing has all the makings of a great HBO drama. It would it would be it would be such a tough needle to thread though, eh? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. 
<laughs> the right showrunner, it would be absolutely amazing. The wrong one, just a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, yeah, that's the that's the story. I uh, I hope it wasn't too convoluted to to follow. I hope you had a good time. Oh, it was fascinating. I I really enjoyed it. That's good. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, thanks so much for coming on today. It was uh, it was a pleasure having you here. Well, thanks for having me again. The turmoil of the Sengoku period taught Japan a lot about what it didn't want and how not to run a country. Newly unified under the Tokugawa shogunate, Japan reacted against new contact with the outside world and decentralized power under the various daimyo. The resulting society was socially static, closed off from the rest of the world, and highly centralized in power, and would not see widespread warfare again for over 250 years. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I was somewhat harder on the common troops of Sengoku-era armies than they probably deserved. They would have had iron scale or even sometimes male armor, and often had decent weapons, hence the swords that were hunted by Toyotomi in his bid to control access to weapons. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.